Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, episode 231, The Final Frontier. Great sci-fi games, board gaming in space. Brought to you by our sponsor, Grand Gamers Guild. I'm Sean and here with me, the Tabletop Bellhop himself, Mo. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, working with you to make your game nights better. We're here live on Twitch, as we are most Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. You're always welcome to stop by and see some of what goes into making the show and hang out with other fans in the lobby, our chat room. So the plan tonight is to spend some time talking about our favorite sci-fi themed board games. To go with that, we will also be reviewing Starship Captains, a game with a familiar theme, and Malem, a rare case of us talking about actual new hotness as it was just released to retail this week. We wrap up with a solid week in review, including my first thoughts on My City, Cartographer's Heroes, Zensu, and the just re-released Dominion app. Find links for these games and more through our show notes, which you can find at tabletopbellhop.com slash episode 231. That's 231. Links there may be affiliate links, and many of the games we'll be talking about will have been provided by publishers for review purposes. And before all that, though, we do have a bit of feedback from the suggestion box. Welcome to this week's suggestion box. So up first, a comment from T Mills on our topic of great games to bring out to a bar, pub, or brewery. Well, they write absolutely great list. Ones I would add is zombie dice. That's a great one to play since it's basically only dice. And Mm -hmm. Invino Morte, which is a card game that can be played up to nine. Well, thanks for those suggestions, T. Uh, Zombie Dice is a game I tend to forget exists because I've never owned my own copy. I've played it many times with other people's copies, and that's actually happened at a few bars. So it's a perfect recommendation. Now, as for Invino Morte, I've never actually heard of that one, but I looked it up. And what it really reminded me of is a cool mini or not game, a Simon game I have called Raise Your Goblets. Now, of course, the Simon version has like plastic mugs and you drop glass beads in them to figure out who's poison. Whereas Vino Morte in Vino Morte looks more like a card based version. I got to say, it looks like the perfect thing that I would want to bring out to a wine bar or a vineyard or a tasting room. Though, I don't know, bringing a game about poisoning wine to a wine cellar may not be appropriate. Well, next we have Wainer369, who commented on our conversation about gaming with family over the holidays to share some game suggestions. They write, If it's a whole family gathering, we found games like Rummy Cub, Triple E, No Thanks, and Uno and Scategories are easy and big hits with all ages and family members. Yeah, there's some real classics there, Wayner. Triple E is one I actually forgot about. I saw it and I'm like, I know that name. So I looked it up on Board Game Geek and I'm like, oh, I totally know this. My dad used to love this game. This is a game that uses a traditional deck of cards, right? A Hoyle style game. But what it is, is you are building one hand of cards, but then you score it based on three different other games. So you're actually trying to make a hand that's good for well, all three times, poker, you know, standard poker, hearts, and rummy, all at the same time. So you're trying to get, and you get points for all the three different things. And I got to say, for my dad, that was perfect for him. That was right up his alley, the the card counter he was. Now, sadly, I've never actually tried it myself. At at the events when he was playing it with our family, I was probably off in the other room playing Talisman. Well, next up, we've got an important follow-up to our Groundhog Gambit review from a couple of weeks back. We heard back from the designer of the game after letting them know about the glitch that happened while Mo's family was playing through the game. Yeah, so Jonathan Schaefer wrote today, just earlier today, to say, 
I've managed to reproduce your issue. What's happening is that depending on the web browser you're using, there's a size limit to the amount of information that can be stored in a single cookie. I believe you got into a state where your phone's browser couldn't store the entire game history. And so the existing saved history was loaded every time it was open. Now he deployed an update. I, well, he did. Sorry, I should be quoting him. I'm reading his letter. I am deploying an update that addresses this situation by breaking large data into multiple chunks, which will be more resilient in these cases. Thanks again so much for bringing this to my attention and for your help in tracking it down. Future gamers will benefit. Well, and that is certainly great to hear. Yeah, I actually went in and updated the written review today to add in a paragraph and actually added a whole section that says the bug's been fixed. And then I went on our YouTube video and added a comment because there's not really a really good way for us to go edit the YouTube video at this point. And I've also added any comments where it's been shared. So hopefully we get the word out that the bug we had no longer a problem. Well, that's it for tonight. Thank you to everyone who comments and shares and interacts with our stuff. Well, we've been warning you for a few weeks now, but we will not be here live next Wednesday, which means no podcast will come out on Tuesday, the 13th of February. Yeah, I think we've given you lots of Valentine's Day themes and games and date night games and couples games to get you to when we get back recording on the 14th. As we move into February, it's time to start the Gamma, Ex Gamma Expo hype. For the first time ever, the Tabletop Bellhop will be at Gamma Expo at its new home in Louisville, Kentucky. I won't be making it to this one, but both both Mo and Deanna will be there. Yeah, um, the original plan was to attend as Gamma members, but then they actually offered us the chance to go as hosted media, which is fantastic. Something we've never been offered in the past. Uh, in a way, a, a big step up for us. And well, we couldn't turn that down. I'm sure Mo will be sharing pictures and info from the show on his social media accounts. Tabletop Port. Bellhop, one word, pretty much everywhere. And I do plan to live vicariously through those, and I encourage you to do the same. Now, the big thing I want to know is who can we look forward to seeing at Gamma? If you're going to be there, I'd love to know. And if you run into Deanna or I while there, do please feel free to come up and introduce yourself. Just please don't uh, be offended if I don't remember your name, especially if we've only interacted online. We talked to a lot of different people, and I have one of those brains that does not remember names. So please introduce yourself, and we'll do the same. We're here to answer your gaming and game night questions. You can send your questions to us by emailing questions at tabletopbellhop.com or click on Ask the Bellhop over on our blog. Tonight's question is, what are some of your favorite sci-fi themed board games? So now sci-fi is a pretty broad category, especially when you compare it to, say, fantasy games. And we've talked about fantasy games fairly recently. I'm sharing fantasy games that have long campaigns as well as fantasy games with lots of miniatures in them. And fantasy, though, like when you say that, people have a pretty good idea of what you're talking about, right? They're thinking knights and dragons, elves and dwarves, dungeons and exploration. When I say sci-fi, though, not everyone gets the same idea in their head, right? Many different people are going to think of different things based on what they're personally into. For some people, sci-fi could be superheroes, one of my favorite genres. It could be cyberpunk, time travel, spaceships, hard science, bring dinosaurs back to life or space wizards. Now, due to this, I think we're better off just limiting our scope just a little, just a little bit. So I think for tonight, we want to stick to games that are, you know, set in the far future and in space in some way. Just to eliminate things like cryptids, uh, classic sci-fi like Frankenstein, superheroes and scanners and psychic abilities, as well as the entire cyberpunk genre, because that's a topic all on its own. I want to leave lots of room, though. That still gives us plenty of space for things like aliens, galactic empire, space 
exploration, starship battles, and so on. Indeed, while many things can be science fiction, sci-fi is is its own category that exists alongside horror, supers, fantasy, and others. Space and future technologies, as well as time travel, however, all solidly fit into the sci-fi category with very little overlap elsewhere. Now, I also wanted to keep the main list tonight, two games you can actually get right now as of January 31st, 2024. They're all verified available today. Either games that are currently in print, supported by the publisher with new content still coming out and expected for future print runs, or games that may be out of print, but are readily available online right now at multiple different online stores and most friendly local game stores. I'm not talking about the game that's available used on Noble Knight or the one store that happens to have an online shop that's in the middle of nowhere that happens to ship worldwide and has that rare copy. So while you might be able to find a copy of Quantum Online, the fact that it's listing for hundreds of dollars despite only being 10 years old takes it off the list. Now, we're also going to feature a few older, harder-to-find games or popular games we haven't personally gotten to the table in our usual honorable mentions. That'll be at the end of the list. Well, with that, let's get into the game list, which, as usual, is in no particular order. So the first game that comes to mind any time anyone says sci-fi board games to me is still Twilight Imperium. That is just the first one that pops into my head. It is an epic 4X game. I'm not even going to get into my complaints about it. It's it's, it's 3X nature sometimes. But a, a popular epic sci-fi game that plays many players and lots of planets and building empires and tech trees and voting and all the stuff you want from a 4X game. Of course, to be that detailed and that epic means there's a lot to learn, it's hard to learn, and it can play very long. Now, Experience Group can get it down to a manageable time, and Twilight Imperium 4th Edition does a way better job than 3rd Edition does in fitting in a shorter game night. But it's still epic and long, and you're signing up for a journey when you sign up to play this game. This is, if you haven't played this, if you are a fan of digital 4X games, stuff like Stellaris, Moo, Masters of Ryan, or Galactic Civilizations, this is the game for you. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, this is one, uh, not surprisingly, it was already called out in our chat room. Although, surprisingly, it was the second one called out, not the first, there you which go. I would have expected. Second on our list is Eclipse Second Dawn for the Galaxy. Now, this is a much more approachable and manageable take on 4X sci-fi. The new Second Dawn version is fantastic. With upgraded components, some rule tweaks, and new techs that really balance the game out, making overall for a fantastic, experiential 4X game. Yeah, of those two, I prefer Eclipse Second Dawn. And I know that's heresy to some folk, but I definitely prefer it. it's 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 streamlined, it's it's got more of a Euro feel, a little less of the favoritism in the voting. I, I would most of the time rather sit down and play Eclipse over Twilight Imperium. Now, the next one I have is Terraforming Mars, which I was on Board Game Geek today, and I can't believe how high it still is on the top 100. It seems people have finally found this game. Back when we were playing regularly, it kind of felt like it was still a niche game. Not everyone had discovered it yet. Now, the game has grown a lot since it was first released. It is it is a card drafting. Well, you could or may not use drafting, but it's, it's, it's a big engine builder with lots of cards and lots of bits and cubes, and it, it can get kind of sprawling, and it can run very long. Now, yes, the Prelude expansion helps, and there's a Prelude 2 expansion on the way, or maybe that's out yet. I'm not even sure because I haven't kept up. Uh, that does speed it up, but it is a long game now because of how kind of it, it's it's all Frankenstein together into this kind of monster with voting phases and everything else. It's almost its own 4X game now. 
But you know what? I still love Terraforming Mars. Every time I play it, even if it takes five hours, it's a very rewarding experience. Yeah, Terraforming Mars is one of those games that people seem to either love or hate. Uh, and some people have come around, but uh, it's become almost a lifestyle game with the people who really yeah. love it going all in with the 3D uh, you know, 3D sets and, and pieces and 3D printing things and uh, in intricate card, well, you know, but deck boxes and card holders and, and ways mm -hmm. of doing things. Whereas the people who don't like it uh, complain about uh, people who may have been involved with the game early on and artistic choices in the game more than anything else. Because really, as a mechanical game, it's really hard to find fault with it. I'm going to call it out since our chat room pointed it out, and thank you for that, is the prelude is due July this year. See, I, I didn't think it was out yet, but I knew it was coming. That's that's on my list to pick up. Well, next up is a favorite of mine, Pulsar 2849. Now, this one's a little less epic. This is an engine-building Euro about exploring space and spinning up gyros to produce energy. I find it wonderfully thematic for what it is, and that thematic nature makes it really easy to learn. Uh, as a Euro, it was one of my first sort of more complex Euros and it just felt natural. Like it, it wasn't a slog to learn despite it being a reason quite complex game, uh, for what it is, uh, and, and being reasonably early in my career of, uh, of those complex games. It just felt natural and things made sense as you were doing them within the concept of, of the sci-fi theme. Yeah. I am a big fan of this game. First got to try it. At the first Origins we ever went to, and um, while learning the game at the table, a little frustrating because we're doing a demo game, and a guy is sitting there, and he's like, yep, I like it, and he ordered a copy, and then showed the guy who was demoing us, going, look, I just bought a copy, and then he got up and left, and we're like, I want to play the whole game. <laughs> like, you don't just walk out in the middle of a game. What are you doing? And it wasn't like a demo. It was like we were supposed to play. Like it was supposed to play play a whole game. And now the person teaching the game had stacked the deck and put things in certain places. And we had like completed a few phases. But I was so frustrated. And I think that's the main reason we bought it is Deanna was enjoying it. And Deanna's like, I need to finish that game. So we need to bring a copy of this home now so I can finish a game of it. So that's actually why we ended up with it. And yes, it's fantastic. A recent discovery of mine is Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition, which is a standalone, complete, you don't need anything else. Yes, there's expansions now for it. It doesn't have anything to do with that other big box Terraforming Mars. Now, this is on this list in place of Race for the Galaxy. Now, the chat room's already called out Race for the Galaxy and good call on that one. It's a solid game. But now that I played Ares Expedition, like if I hadn't played Ares Expedition, if we didn't try it at Origins this year, if we didn't do a short demo, I'd still have Race for the Galaxy on this list. It's a fantastic game. But this is everything I love about Terraforming Mars and the engine building in it with the role selection of uh, Race for the Galaxy mashed together. And it's it, to me, it's a match made in heaven. I Race for the Galaxy I was, is probably still is my most played game of all time, especially physical. It's the game I've physically played more than any other game in my collection and i doubt i'll be unpacking it that often anymore well i you know it's a shame but uh not every game can last forever next up we've got dune imperium it's dune and deck building and area majority and worker placement and it <laughs> oozes theme but it's still approachable enough that even if you don't know the theme if you're not a fan of the dune ip you can still pick it up because the the mechanics just just all work nicely uh, and you don't need need to know that you know this is doing this or that's doing that or what you know what what the baron's doing versus what the atreides are doing yeah. but if you do know that 
it works and it makes sense mm-hmm. how the different uh, factions are playing. And at this point, our only experience is the base game. I know there's multiple expansions out and everyone I see raving about them is like, makes the game better, makes the game better. And I'm like, man, it's good already. I can't wait to try out those expansions at some point, but really we just need to play the base game more often. <laughs> so I, I totally with you on this one. It's a great recommendation. Next, I put one on the list just to prove everything we've talked about so far is, is kind of heavy-ish, right? Or, or really heavy and epic or meaty or big thinky games. Well, you know what? Not all sci-fi games have to brain burn you. I want to th- mention Galaxy Trucker, a game about building a ship out of plumbing because it's cheaper than putting the plumbing in its own ship and shipping it. You just build your ship out of the plumbing and arriving and selling all the plumbing that is your ship when you arrive. And that's done through real-time shipbuilding where people are flipping tiles and putting them in their pile under a time limit, so you're rushed, and then going on a voyage with that ship where, honestly, it's just as much fun watching your ship get destroyed as it is to build it. Um, terrible things are going to happen along the way, and no one's going to get back to base in full shape that they left in. Super silly, excellently written rule book that kind of sets the tone for the whole game. And for those that don't know, like this is an older game. They recently did a second edition that actually improved on it. We do have a review on that, which I'll link. Um, but the new edition actually switches it so you don't have to do a full run every time and has it set up so you can do nice, quick little 45 minute runs in Galaxy Trucker, which I think perfectly fits that light, whimsical theme. Yeah, Galaxy Trucker never really uh, came uh, got to me. I, I think the, that real time aspect of it, uh, and I know D is is tends to be the same. The yes. real time stuff isn't a, a big thing, but it is definitely a fun, uh, quirky sci fi game. Yeah. So next up, uh, we've got the Artemis Project. Now we just reviewed this one last week. It's a dice based yep. <laughs> worker placement where you have to shift your focus from engine building to end game scoring partway through the game. Now, I will admit that this one often feels to me a bit like it could have been in the Arctic as opposed to a far off planet, Uh, but it is absolutely taking place on a moon of Jupiter, uh, and some of the technology in there definitely makes it sci-fi either way. Yeah, if if the flavor text is definitely there. Now, what I do wonder is we have the satellites and commanders expansion for this that we haven't tried out yet. I wonder if having satellites spinning around the board would uh, make it feel less like the Arctic and more like you're actually in space. Next one that I think anyone who's listened to the show for a long time or knows me personally is going to know was going to show up on this list at some point, and that's Star Wars Imperial Assault. I am shocked we're still putting this on list because they stopped supporting this game a number of years ago, but they didn't stop producing it. Like, the, the game still exists. Fantasy Flight just stopped producing new content, but they keep putting out more and more waves of the existing content, which I'm shocked that see Fantasy Flight continue to support a game that long after it's like really it's lifespan. So it's awesome to see this game is still going on. You're still able to get all of the expansions, all of the stuff. And if it's out of print, it seems like it's just going to keep coming. It seems to be an evergreen game for them. Now, for people who don't know it, this is a Star Wars dungeon crawler. This is Descent in the Dark Star Wars. This is, you make a party of adventurers, you go into, you, you randomly get a dungeon, you build it with map tiles, and you play out a one versus many battle or a co-op versus an app battle against the Empire. Like it, it's, it's, one of the best dungeon crawlers I played, yet it has a Star Wars theme. And yes, there's also a whole other way to play where you can do skirmish battles, where you collect your own miniatures and battle each other. That is a totally other way to play. Though I, everyone I know that was doing that has moved on to Star Wars Legion, which is another fantasy flight game. But yeah, Imperial Assault still, like every time I go to do a list on dungeon crawlers or star best theme, theme games or licensed games or any of that, I'm like, oh, let's see, is Imperial Assault out of print yet? 
No, it's still here. Okay, goes on the list. Well, while it's not all that heavily tied to its theme, The Crew, Quest for Planet Nine, is a sci-fi-based trick-taking game that manages to capture some of that feel of the dangers of space through limited communication rules. Uh, and so while it's not far future, it is certainly space adventure, and that definitely falls under our uh, definition of sci-fi. That's a fun one. I, I don't know if the deep sea fits. I don't know if the deep sea is on Earth or not. I didn't look into that one. We haven't tried that version. Uh, sticking with Star Wars. Next, I have Star Wars Rebellion. This is uh, the, the, the Twilight Imperium for Star Wars fans, right? It's an epic two to four player game where you end up playing out the entire intergalactic war. Um, people like to refer to this one as Star Wars in a box, at least the original trilogy with, if you have the expansions, a bit of um, Rebels and um, what was the one with Jenner or so I'm totally blanking on uh, whatever the, <laughs> the prequel to the, the original series Rogue One. That's the name of it. If you have the expansion, you can add some Rogue One in. This is the Empire searching for the Rebel base. The Rebels are trying to survive and, and supplant the Empire and you can blow up the Death Stars and they could play out just like the movie or the last time I played, I made Chewbacca a Jedi. So it is a fantastic, big poke on a map, diplomacy, epic Star Wars game. All right. Well, next up, we have Star Realms. This is now a classic deck builder that we've been talking about quite a bit lately after discovering the newer Frontiers edition and what it brings to the game, which includes solo and cooperative play. Now, this is still one of the best deck building games ever published and there's no question that this one is sci-fi yeah we're still playing this one frontiers got us rehooked. um there's a big kickstarter going on now for an all foil edition not something i'm particularly interested in but that's definitely shows that wise wizard is still supporting the game and putting out new content which is good to see well i put star wars in a box on the list so i don't want to upset the other half of the the sci-fi franchise fandom and no i know there's more than two big series out there but that is star trek in a box uh that is in the form of star trek ascendancy um this to me is zoomed out star trek like you're you're looking at star trek like from the command uh like starfleet command not on an individual ship here you're, you're at like a quadrant level you're moving fleets of ships and exploring galaxies and establishing space lanes. The really brilliant stuff thing in this game, though, is the asymmetry between the different factions. And it kind of does the root thing before it was as popular as it is now, where every faction has their own way to win. And they're each trying to do their own thing. Now, it's not a coin game. It doesn't go that far where you have to help out some other players to, to succeed. Um, but like the Klingons play completely different than the Federation, which play completely different from the Ferengi, which is one of the expansions. And I also love the fact that if you do include the Borg, which is an expansion, they can be an, an AI enemy that everyone has to deal with or someone can play them. And I love the idea of playing like a three or four player game with the Borg in the center of the galaxy messing with everyone. All right. Another Dice-driven work and placement game, Alien Frontiers, which was called out uh, first, actually, in the chat room uh, by our uh, our lobbyists. Uh, again, a dice-driven worker placement game, one of the first ever published, and still one of the best. Yeah. I haven't gotten to play this one nearly as much as I would like, but it's definitely there. Yeah, this is one that confused me because it is still in print with a brand new edition that I had heard nothing about. It just kind of slipped under the radar and I'm like, oh, cool. Alien Frontiers is still out. I wasn't too worried because I have my copy and I'm happy with my copy. I've got, I, I backed a Kickstarter 
somewhere in the reprint line that gave me all the, like the cool little domes and everything for it. A fantastic game. I have been, uh, I wouldn't say obsessed, but enjoying that game since it came out. Okay, I threw Star Trek in there. Maybe I should have kept all the Star Wars together. But anyway, the next one is another Star Wars game. Um, and that is the new Fantasy Flight game, Star Wars deck building game. Now, this is a two-player only game that Deanna and I have really been digging. It has some similarities to Star Realms. And honestly, when I taught the game to D, I'm like, think Star Realms, but um, of course, I'm a big fan of the theme, but I just really like the way the confrontations work in this game. You're not directly attacking the opponent like a, like as a person. You're not reducing their their health like in magic or their um, glory, I think it is, in um, Star Realms for the amount we play Star Realms. Everyone just calls it hit points, <laughs> hit points and damage. Um, in this one though, you're, you're attacking specific cards, you're attacking your opponent's bases. And then there's the really neat thing where you can actually attack cards in the market. And I think that's really well done. I've never seen a game with the, the dueling game with the attacking each other where your cards don't stay up every round. Right. And that's what it's just funky, right? It's got kind of that magic feel, but then if you had to wipe all your creatures at the end of every turn, really enjoying this one. Um, don't think we're getting sick of it anytime soon. Strongly recommended. All right, well, Mo covered Star Wars and Star Trek, so I'm going to cover Stargate SG-1, the board game. No, no, I'm not. Please don't <laughs> go find this game. There's a reason it's rated 4.5 on Board Game Geek, and you probably can't buy it anyway. I would love a good Stargate game. I'd be all for that. But what I'm actually going to talk about is Space Base. Now, we have played this one a ton, both with yeah. Mo's physical copy, but also online through both Tabletop Simulator and BGA once they finally uh, added the game there. Now, looking forward, we are looking going to be diving into the mysteries of Terra Proxima that you got for your birthday, and uh, hopefully that will reinvigorate us yet again on this fantastic game with its funny little thin cards. Yes, funny little thin card. One of the few games I sleeved because they gave me sleeves in one of the expansions, so I very well they gave me the sleeves. I might as well use them. We can finally get to it again. So we we we're gonna have to plan a, at least a game night, if not multiple, to get through that expansion so we can we can let people know if Terra Proxima is as fun as Shy Bluto was. All right, I'm gonna go to a classic game. This one has been around uh for a very long time, reprinted by Fantasy Flight Games. Another one that I was kind of shocked is still being printed, and that is Mission Red Planet. Um, this is still to this day one of the most pure and best area majority games ever published. And that's probably why they're still printing it. Uh, this actually has some similarities to Mlem, which we'll be reviewing later, because this is one of those games where you have a set of crew members and you're choosing which crew member to use each turn. Each crew member has different special abilities. There's obviously some inspiration going on there. Uh, this is a fantastic game, really good. This is one of those games that like Fantasy Flight can be really good at components, and they did a fantastic job on this with these little kind of chunky uh, aliens or not aliens, uh, astronauts with flags and colorful tokens and it, the, a great looking board. And it's got kind of a steampunk feel. It's it's that retro rocket look the, in, instead of the, you know, sleeks or the dirty. All right. Well, next up, we've got uh, Babylon 5 collectible card game. No, I'm sorry. You can't actually <laughs> get that one either. Uh, Clank in space. It's Clank, but in space. Now, I still adore the original Clank and still regularly play it with my kids. This version puts the game well, in space and features a more active adversary and modular boards, making it more replayable than the original. Uh, there's something about this one. I still prefer the original and I don't know what it is. 
I don't know. Usually I like sci-fi, but that one didn't quite do it. All right, one more. We we are the last one on the list. It'll be 19 full fantastic sci-fi games. And I'm going to cheat because this one isn't set in space. Actually, I wasn't sure and I had to look it up, but it's in the far future here on Earth. Um, it's now near uninhabitable and you have to jump in a giant mech-like exosuit to leave your settlement, you know, go visit the capital. So yeah, it's post-apocalyptic sci-fi, but it's far enough in the future that it feels like you're in another world, I guess. I, whatever. You know what? I had to include it on my list because Anachrony is my favorite game of all time. It is my number one game, and it's definitely sci-fi, even if it doesn't quite fit our constraints quite right. And well, it's my show, so it goes on the list tonight. And and I did mention sci-fi or, or time travel fits specifically into sci-fi as a category. Yeah, so, so I think go. we're I think we're safe there, and, and I love it too. So uh, tough to anyone who complains. Next up, though, we have a few honorable mentions. All right, Battlestar Galactica. You're you're pulling in the other licenses, so I figure it's time to bring in one that that actually is good. Um, the the now classic hidden trader game. One of the best, if not the best, hidden trader game I've ever played based on the new show. Well, it's not new anymore. The newer show. Um, I think someone pointed out something about us being old where the, like the new Battlestar Galactica is now as far away from the old one as we are like our age. Oh, terrible. Anyway, based on the new show, tons of expansions, fantasy flight through everything at this game, probably put a bit too much into it at once. Got a little frustrating to fit set up and half the game was arguing with players over what expansion to use. And yes, we mentioned it multiple times. It can be fragile if uh, especially if you get role players who want to play the characters from the show instead of playing um, what they should be doing in the game. A great game. Yes, it's been replaced by Unfathomable, but that's not sci fi. And plus, I don't care about the Cthulhu license at all. I am just really glad I got a copy of this when it was readily available. Well, Neither of us have played the Avalon Hill classic Dune or any of the modern updates to it, but it continues to be very popular and tops almost everyone else's best sci-fi game lists. True. We really do need to find a way to play this at least once. Uh, Someone in Windsor has got to have a copy of, you know, perhaps the newest one that we can give a try. Yeah. And to be fair, I have a a Canadian version that's all in French, but... (laughs) I, I, we could try, my kids could play it and we'll, I'll watch. I don't know. I, I do actually own a French version of it because I thought I was getting an English version and no wonder it was so cheap. Uh, speaking of classic games that people seem to love, I have to throw Cosmic Encounter on the list. It's another classic Avalon Hill game, like from the seventies that's still around and still popular. Now I got to say it. I don't like this game, but I only tried once. Maybe it was the group I played with. But based on what I can tell, everyone who praises this game, the stuff they're praising just doesn't sound good to me. The game is far too random, far too ridiculous. And the theory that everyone's power is overpowered, so therefore it's fun, doesn't really sit well with me. People love it, though. And you know what? I, for those of you who out there who love the game, all the power to you. And it's still one of the most popular sci-fi games ever published. Like It was originally published in the 70s, and people are still playing it now. Well, the uh, math guy Dave mentions, and I'm just going to jump on this because uh, it fits with my theme. Uh, the Firefly 10th anniversary game is coming out this year sometime, but that means that it's going to be canceled next year after 11. So we'll just uh, <laughs> move on because another one we would love both love to try is Nemesis Aliens with mm. the serial numbers, you know, rubbed that a little bit. Uh, yeah. 
Now, the first version proved very popular. And we hear it's even better than ever with Nemesis Lockdown. But now a third version, Nemesis Retaliation, will be releasing apparently in 2025. All right. I'm going to, I don't want to frustrate anyone who's listening at home, but for those of you in the chat, you can get Lockdown for 90 bucks at Miniature Market today only. It's their deal of the day today, literally today, while we record on Wednesday, the 31st of January. Like that, that is, that's a hundred dollars off the MSRP. It's a $190 game. You can get it for 90. So I'm going to throw in a little plug there for miniature market. Um, if Deanna wasn't snoring over there, I'd have her toss a link in the, in the chat for you to use. Now, speaking of aliens, one of my favorite sci-fi games of all time remains the two player miniature game space Hulk from games workshop. I adore the first printing of this game. I got the white dwarves and I bought two copies of each white dwarf that had Space Hulk stuff in it so I could cut out the pages with the map tiles and glue them to cereal boxes so I could expand my game. I know Sean remembers those days of me showing up every week with something new for Space Hulk. Now, this one has come back into print a few times, uh, three times, it seems. Uh, but I checked this morning and I went to Games Workshop. They don't currently have Space Hulk listed as one of their games at all. Now, I do see copies of the fourth edition at a few online stores. I wouldn't call this one readily available, though. And uh, the uh, digital version is absolutely worth playing just to hear the voice acting for <laughs> Birds with Flame. I don't I, the, the, I think the latest version doesn't have the D-Rock soundtrack, but man, oh, it was that's good. Just, that's, that's all kinds of wrong. So the next up, we have Beyond the Sun, otherwise known as Tech Tree, the board game. Yeah, so this is on both of our lists of games we need to figure out a way to play. It sounds like it's right up our alley, though I have to say, looking at setups of it you know, being played is a pretty wild experience. I, it, yeah, it's it's got to be the setup rules in that have got to be something special. Now that one is on Board Game Arena now, so that's how we should sit down and play it. But like even the chat rooms, like I think it's going to be my next sci-fi game. It it just I've heard so much good stuff, and and I like Rio Grande style games. All right, next one I don't think will be reprinted ever, but you know what? I said that about Hero Quest for years, and that actually happened. But that is Forbidden Stars. This is a 4X epic game by way of Warhammer 40,000. Um, this is one Sean needs to try badly because he's a fan of Warhammer. And I know you're more into the fantasy than the sci fi for Warhammer, but 40K still has that feel, right? The John Blanchness of it all. Um, we need to get this one once the basement's back together and get played. Like, this is. It features a fantastic order placement system and kind of initiative system. It's got a cool way to break up the boards to make it feel more 3D. So people that are next to each other one turn aren't the next turn. But yeah, this one, the licensing is is not, it's not like Robotech messy, but this is one I don't think we'll ever see again. All right, well, next up is, oh, that's what I've already, we already did that one. Uh, another game that's currently impossible to find, but one that may actually get a reprint that we love is... Zaya Legends of a Drift System. Yeah. Now, this is a sand, sci-fi sandbox game. But let's play, play it how they want. While it's not the yeah. most tactical or strategic game out there, it can be a ton of fun. As long as you're willing to just play to see what happens. Now, yep. we have also pointed out many times that Embers of a Forsaken Star is pretty much a must-have expansion to really get the most out of this game. Yeah, I gotta say, if they do another printing, I hope Far Off Games has listened to fans and just, like, makes it part of the game now. If you're gonna do, I don't know what they're on, fourth or fifth print run, every time they do it on Kickstarter. So if it does come back, I'm assuming it'll be some kind of crowdfunded project uh, to bring it back. But I just hope they, 
And if they do it, they can at least get the all-in pledge if they're not going to improve the box and put everything together. All right, before we wrap up our talk on our favorite space-themed, sci-fi-themed games, let's give a nod to the TTRPG segment of our fans with some quick space RPG recommendations. Well, I think we would be fools to ignore Alien the RPG from Free League with its two yep. separate styles of play and a fantastic starter box that yeah. we have reviewed here on the show. Next up, since we have talked about Star Wars a little bit on this show already, Scum and Villainy for all those Star Warring fans out there. And last, but far from least, Stars Without Number is uh, really one of the top rated TTRPGs out there for sci-fi. And then there's the uh, Star Trek one, which I actually got a copy of for my birthday, but I haven't actually even done more than to crack open the, the tricorder and look at what you get inside. So that's one that may be on our list by next year. Now, for me, for sci-fi RPGs, the one I had a lot of fun with it, it was Eclipse Phase. Um, it, it's a D100-based system, so it talked to my 1E Warhammer roots in, in, a, in a pleasing way. Um, and its mashup of cyberpunk, transhumanism, and space opera all in one really intrigued me. I'm also a big fan of the Fantasy Flight Star Wars games. I actually ran these. This isn't just I read a book, right? I ran Edge of the Empire for a while. Fantastic system with a narrative dice pool system that, again, came from Warhammer 4E. So I guess I, I think I just like games inspired by Warhammer. Well, just to, just to prove that wrong, the West End games, classic D6 Star Wars. Now, this doesn't belong on our list, really, because there's, well, you could find copies pretty easily, actually, um, but not necessarily legally. Uh, the classic West End Star Wars. After playing, I played the D20 Star Wars. I, a big Star Wars fan, right? D20 Star Wars. I played D20 Star Wars Revised. I played Fantasy Flight Star Wars, and I had an old-school gamer challenge me to try the original West End games. Um, Wayne Humphrey, the Star Wars guy. And I tried it, and I was like, oh my god, this is fantastic. Where was this all my life? So, all of them are great. Now, locally, I am also a big fan of Numenera. Now, yes, I was a playtester on that game, so I did get to see it before anyone else did. But you know what? We ran a short campaign with the playtest rules, and my personal group at the time absolutely adored it. To me, that was Fantasy Star Online, the RPG, and I loved Fantasy Star. Um, the last one, though, I've always wanted to try. I want to throw this one in here is Traveler. There's a million different editions out there, and there's fans kind of like the D&D crowd. There's fans that prefer the little black books and fans that prefer Mongoose. People who, oh, I don't know if anyone plays T5, but anyway, that doesn't matter. I've always wanted to run a campaign in Traveler. All right. Well, that's it for our sci-fi game recommendations, but we have had some great chat here in the lobby, uh, starting with some we've already mentioned, but uh, games like Artemis Odyssey, as opposed to the Artemis Project. <laughs> right behind me on the shelf, still in shrink. We'll get to it. Now, what I do know about that one is I'm going to like, because it's actually a re-theme of an older game called Ad Astra, which is one of my favorite sci-fi games, but it's so long out of print, I didn't even put it on this list. And I figure I'm not even going to pop pimp that one, talk about that one until I play Odyssey, since that's the latest version. And sorry, Mark, we haven't gotten to that one yet. Uh, Among the Stars came up as well. That's uh, an RPG, is it not? Uh, no, I think you're thinking of... Uh, I doubt it because it was mentioned by Rob. Or maybe by there's Ryan. both. <laughs> so, uh, um, okay. And then, oh uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. The old classic drafting game that was also rethemed to a farming game. There's okay. a, there's a new edition of that, but it's now a farm game. That Fields does, of green is the new edition. Doesn't belong on the list. <laughs> yeah, it definitely doesn't fit on the list. That was, I loved that game when it first came out, but it did a bad thing with the expansion. In my opinion, it did one of those expansions where it gave you all new tiles. You don't get to just max them in. You had to swap in tiles in and out. Oh. And then the game became a pain to set up and I didn't stop playing it anymore. 
Roger mentions Cosmic Frog. I, he keeps trying to tell me he I have does. to play yep. that, but every time we get together, it doesn't happen. Uh, co-op Conquest of Planet Earth. I've heard good things. La- yep. Last Light. That looks good. Um, that sold out everywhere really quick. There's actually a current Kickstarter live now for another printing of that one. Uh, Red, uh, Ryan mentioned uh, Roll for the Galaxy was just too dry and, and abstract for him. There um, was a period of time when it was new. I liked it, and I liked the expansion for it. Um, it kind of refreshed Race for the Galaxy for me for a little while, and actually got us back playing both because it'd be like, oh, let's play the dice version. Let's play the other one. There were some really neat mechanics in that one, but I'll have to say that one sat on my shelf gathering dust, which is why it didn't make the list. Yeah, I enjoyed it on uh, Board Game Arena. It was a it was yep. a solid implementation of Board Game Arena. So if you do like playing Roll for the Galaxy, it's a great way to get into it. There, uh, Cryo is mentioned by Roger. That is one I don't know. That's a newer one. Okay. Yeah. Ryan also asked if they could be using Legion as a way to sideload Imperial Assault content using Legion minis. No, because Legion split the whole Imperial Assault crowd. It was the silliest thing they ever did. Like, let's we have a Star Wars skirmish miniature game, but let's put out a new one and make it so the miniatures aren't compatible. I will never understand that marketing decision. Even worse, they've now put out Shatterpoint, which is a new Star Wars miniature game that has a different size than Legion. Jeez. Like, I, I'm baffled. I really uh, am. Roger's mentioning Cosmic Encounter is a real hoot. That was on our list. We uh, said that one. Yes, yes, we did. Uh, Ryan says, get the SG-1 board games for the minis. Uh, <laughs> Are there actually minis in the SG-1 board games? They're not that kind of minis. They're little, there's uh, little okay. figure things. Um. And then, uh, what else we got here? Uh, Ryan, Roger mentions here, and this is worth mentioning, not here, but it would, might be a cool idea to do an episode of the same under the skin games that have been reskinned, uh, like glory to Rome, which is now Motanai or recently redone again, Motanai, Esport. Yeah. uh, and, uh, complaints Pete, that no mentions that of the 30 versions of star Wars monopoly or, yeah, or star no. Trek tic-tac-toe. Hey, I got to say, though, Star Trek, Star Wars Life was actually good. You had to choose if you wanted to go down the dark side or the light side. Like of all the mass market Star Wars games, that one was pretty good. Star Wars Monopoly I bought. Um, sadly, the episode one version that was released before the movies came out and had like gold figures and I paid way too much money for it. Um, and it was terrible because it was just Monopoly. Like I really thought well, yeah, it was so going it, to have so it was, very, so was some, episode one. Uh- <laughs> well, yeah, I thought it was going to have something in it. Yeah, okay, Math Guy did saying it was okay, okay. I, like It was good for a Star Wars theme of an old game. And I'm not saying it was good, like, you know, go buy the Star Wars Risk, because <laughs> that actually is really good. Right. Which is a re-theme of Queen's Gambit. Uh, Math Guy Dave recommends uh, Star Wars Outer Rim being pretty good based on the one ah. pre-pandemic play. Please. So everyone I talked to about that game said it's fantastic, but you go through the entire deck halfway through the game, and it's just a little too repetitive, and it needs an expansion. So I actually held off. I'm like, I'm not going to pick this up if they don't put in an expansion. Well, they put in an expansion and then COVID hit and it just, I never picked up either. So I just haven't had a chance to try that one. Uh, again, if anyone local owns that, I'd love to try it at one of our events. Uh, because we started talking about time travel, Roger's asking is Euphoria is a space game. Uh, it was on a lot of people's sci-fi lists. I thought about putting it on the list tonight, but I, I is it, I, it's... <laughs> It's more dystopian future than right. sci-fi, right? Like we were trying to talking. I didn't put it on the list because it didn't have that space feel to me. Uh, no love for Outer Rim, masks Ryan. Again, that's the the Star Wars one we just said. Haven't had a chance to play. And it. Uh, Eclipse Phase, love for that uh, from Ryan. Uh, Roger says the Captain is dead. He's heard is a good game. I want to try that. That's that's 
we're going to be talking about that style of game later tonight in a way that is a you are you know on the bridge of a starship and the captain dies and all that's left are basically lower decks before lower decks existed it, it's all the lesser crew members need to now take over the ship which sounded a lot of fun i've not had a chance to try that and uh, i mean junior is asking did we mention apiary bees in space no, I, again, these were games we've at least tried, so we could talk about our own opinion. Um, because we have not reviewed Viticulture World, we were not in the reviewer pile for Apiary. All right. Um, Ryan's mentioning he solved setup for ATS. I might have to. I might have to ask him about that, but I can't even remember if I kept the game. <laughs> I, I honestly don't remember I, with the game room being a mess. Yep. Because <laughs> I had that, and I bought the first expansion, Ambassadors, and like I said, I just didn't like the fact that it was like. Oh, if you're going to add in a green room, you have to pull out another green room. All right, then. So for those of you at home, did we miss your favorite sci-fi game? What space-themed games that we may have missed should we check out? I would especially love to hear about any hidden gems we may not even know about. So I got to say, between Sean and I in the chat, we covered almost every sci-fi game I can think of. Um, uh, uh, Junk Orbit there. We didn't bring up Junk Orbit tonight. There's another one on the silly side. Um, but I would love to know about a hidden gem, like a, a solid, decent game that that everyone's kind of overlooked, maybe because the theme wasn't that often that uh, that popular. Uh, you can post a comment, reply on social media, or let us know on our Discord, which you can find at discord.tabletopbellhop.com. Now, a word from our sponsor, Grand Gamers Guild. Uh, if you don't already subscribe to the Grand Gamers Guild newsletter, you probably should. Just last week, uh, Mark put out a big crowdfunding state of the guild address where he outlined all of their plans for 2024. Um, in there, there are three big projects they're working on for the new year. Um, one is Buba Kiki, which I got to say is fascinating what it's based on. Pasaraya, an endangered Australia. I think we might get drop bears. Now, everything is subject to change, but that's quite the range of stuff. A party game based on the Bubakiki effect, which is the mental association between sound and shape, a new deck builder, and another big box, exp box expansion for Endangered, which we've really been digging into lately. Yeah, the whole Bubakiki thing is the fact that if I say the word Booba to you, you tend to picture something round. And if I say Kiki to you, you tend to picture something spiky, which it just fascinates me. I'm like, I'm, I, I went down a bit of a hole earlier today looking into this. And yeah, Endangered, we are actually really enjoying this one. It's been quite the hit locally. And it's, to me, the, the happy part about this is seeing the game continues to be supported with new content, uh, which goes well with our theme earlier tonight with a whole bunch of games that are no longer supported. So it's great to see Endangered supported because we are enjoying it. And I got to say, like that, that Uba Kiki game, just like a game based on that just sounds fascinating. And well, everyone knows how much we love deck builders. All right. Well, you can subscribe by entering your email at the top of the Grand Gamers Guild webpage. And we tossed a direct link into the chat and it'll be in the show notes. Oh, and remember, if you do any shopping while on the page, use our code bellhop, B-E-L-L-H-O-P, to save 10%. Welcome aboard our review of Starship Captains, a sci-fi themed board game that puts you in command of your own starship. This one comes from CGE, who we have to thank for set providing us with a review copy. The Starship Captains was designed by Peter Hofgard and published by Czech Games Edition in 2022 with disappointingly little fanfare due to everything else going on in 2022. This Trek-inspired game plays one to four players with games taking under two hours on average and being quicker the fewer the players. 
While recommended for ages 12 plus and having a decent amount of weight, we could see some younger kids also getting into it. So in Starship Captains, each player is a spanking brand new shiny captain just given command of a not so shiny, not so new starship and about to set off on its maiden voyage. You'll have to manage your crew of cadets and ensigns split over three different crew master member types, explore the galaxy, battling pirates, completing missions and working on diplomatic relations with three different factions. You're going to use medals to promote your crew. You're going to upgrade your ship with new technologies and seek the help of the ancient tin can. Sorry, don't call them that tin can empire with the goal of becoming the first among equals. Check out the very cool components in this sci-fi engine builder through our Starship Captain's unboxing video on YouTube. There you will see the, the, the highlight of this game, actually, mechanic, er, aesthetically, uh, production quality-wise, is the best designed two-layer player boards I've ever seen because they pull off the effect by using folded boards, a board that's folded in half instead of gluing two sheets of cardboard together, thus avoiding the very common warping problem that we have seen many times in games with two-layer boards. You'll also see some very cool cadet and ensign miniatures that come in familiar colors and a variety of random sculpts so that no two crews are the same. Additional mm -hmm. miniatures for the androids, cards featuring excellent and clear iconography, pirate and artifact tokens, and more. Yeah, there's actually a lot of bits in this game, quite a bit of, of cardboard in the box. And honestly, all of it's top line, like uh, including the very clear rulebook. Uh, the only thing you're not going to find that I kind of wish was there is some way to organize all of this, um, except for some plastic baggies. Like you didn't even get like a Fantasy Flight Prof insert here. <laughs> um, like the baggies work for me and it's quick enough to set up the game, but packing up at the end of the day can be a little annoying. And I know there's going to be some people out there seeking a third party insert for Starship Captains. They've really thought how things work together. Even the 3D ships are quite impressive, though we still have no idea what the tiny, extra, nicely printed, folded bits of cardboard are for. Really, is what you expect quality-wise from CGE games. Now up next, let's launch into a high-level overview of play. Alright, you're going to start the game of Starship Captains by seeding the board with tokens, some of which are going to be replaced by mission cards. By the end, the board will be filled with a base for the Tinkins, and one for the Neon Pirates, some missions, some numbered spaces that will hold missions in the future, and some pirates scattered on the paths between spots on the board. Everyone starts at the Cooperative HQ, uh, that's what they are calling the Federation in this game, and places their 3D cardboard ship markers there. Each player gets a shipboard with its starting crew and damage counters. Yes, your ship starts beat up with seven damage counters split over its tech board and cargo hold. Your starting crew consists of two ensigns of each color and one cadet, but three of the ensigns, one of each color, start in the queue and not the ready room. You also start with one medal. So the three faction diplomacy boards are placed to the side of the main board with a tracker for each player placed on the zero spot. A random card is assigned to the cooperative and pirate faction boards, and the Tinkin board starts with its same card that it has every game but does get a random technology card from that deck. Uh, the central tech board is filled with starting tech cards, and you're ready to go. Each turn in Starship Captains, you select either pass, complete an away mission, or select one crew member to activate a room on your ship and take the associated action. Each room has a color that matches one of the crew types, and those rooms can only be activated by a crew member of that color. Now, before you do anything, though, you get a chance to promote and manage your crew. 
At the cost of one medal, you can promote a cadet to any of the three ensign types, or you can laterally promote an existing ensign to a different crew type. Now, later in the game, once you've earned a few more medals, you can also promote any ensign to a captain by spending three medals. Managing your crew complement through promotion is a big part of the game. Sorry, I said captain should be commander by spending three months. You're the captain. You promote them to be with you. Good for you. Yeah. Every ship Sorry, starts. Commanders. Every ship starts with four main rooms that you can activate. There's the red room that lets you move. If you move through a space with a pirate, you take one damage. You use this to get to the missions you want to complete, to be able to get into position to take out pirates, or stop at one of the three faction bases to get rewards. The yellow room is your phasers or proton torpedoes or whatever you want to call them. Your weapons, which lets you destroy a nearby pirate. Now, this does damage your ship, but gives you the reward shown on the pirate token. This will either be a medal and an artifact or a captured tinkin, which will join your crew. You can also keep the pirate token as bounty, worth points at the end of the game, or they can be used for a few different things throughout the game during missions and some technologies. Some of those uses are a little questionable. Well, that leads us to the blue room, which lets you draft any one card on the central tech board. These include permanent bonuses that are always in effect and game scoring cards and new rooms you can send your crews to. When you get one of these cards, you place it on your tech slot board where you may get a bonus action based on matching symbols on the edges of cards and on the board. Now, the final core room that everyone gets is for enacting repairs on your ship. Now, this one's gray. It means any color crew can use it, and it's the only room the gray cadets can use on their own. Using this room lets you remove one damage counter from your ship, either freeing up more room for tech cards or room in your cargo hold. Now, instead of using a room on your ship, your crew can instead complete an away mission, if they are at a mission card, that is. Each mission requires one to three crew members and lists specific bonuses that are unlocked if you send the matching colored crew on that mission. But one, people, one thing people often forget is that you don't need to have the right colored crew. Having them only unlocks the, unlocks the bonuses on the card. Also, any tin can crew you may have count as all colors for completing missions. Every completed mission awards you points at the end of the game, but they also have a huge range of other potential benefits. Again, if you send the correct type of crew on the mission. These can include going up on the various diplomacy tracks, taking damage, repairing damage, Gaining Tinkin crew members, earning medals, promoting crew members, taking tech cards, warping anywhere on the board, and a lot more. Now, after a crew member is used either in a room or on a mission, they move from the ready room to the back of the queue track on your player board. At the end of each of the game's four rounds, the queue will slide forward, letting you use a selection of your crew again, though there are always three members left behind, and managing the order of the crew is another big part of this game. Note, the Tinkins don't fit in this track, and are discarded after use. As uh, someone who has a quality background, seeing an actual pokey yoke on a board game fills me with joy. Now, one thing that can mess with the queue system are those commanders that you've promoted, right? You need three medals to promote a commander, but once you do, they become very powerful. A commander, when used to activate a room, can activate it twice. You just get double the benefit. When sent on an away mission, if they're matching the right color, they can get double the reward. Or instead, a commander can take a regular action reward, just like any other crew, but then order another crew member of their color to skip the line and move from the queue to the ready room. Another thing that can mess with timing are artifacts, which are gained through missions, defeating pirates, and some rooms and tech carts. Each artifact has two colors on it and takes up space in your cargo hold. Now, any turn, instead of using a crew member, a player can turn in two artifacts that have matching colors to activate a room as if they used an ensign of that appropriate color. 
Now, I think all that really leaves are those faction boards we kind of mentioned at the beginning and talked about going up on those. So various technologies, room actions, and probably mainly mission rewards are going to have players moving counters up on one or more of these tracks. As your counters move, they're going to collect minor rewards when hitting certain spots. And how far everyone gets on every track is part of endgame scoring. Now, along with this, each um, of the three factions has like a power that's represented by a card. And that activates when the first player reaches the top quadrant of those tracks. For the Tintin, this means that a random technology card is now available for everyone else to use. For the mm. other factions, though, the effect is randomized every game. The cooperative faction cards tend to help all of the players, while the neon pirate cards tend to do something nasty. Now, interestingly, only two of these cards can be in play in a single game. After the threshold has been reached on two of the tracks, you flip the card on the third as that faction is jealous of the time you spent with the other two and refuses to help. Play continues with players going on missions and or activating rooms until everyone passes, which usually happens because you're out of crew members and you don't have or don't want to spend your artifacts to take additional actions. You then get ready for the next round, or if it's the end of the fourth round, figure out everyone's final score. Now, at the end of the first three rounds, everyone does get a bonus from the cooperative, kind of some help from home. The first round, this is a free medal that you can use to upgrade your crew. And in rounds two and three, this is a new recruit in the form of a new cadet who goes right into your ready room. There is a bit of reseeding done and the starting player passes to the left. At the end of the game, players get points for their completed missions, their progress on the faction boards, Omega Tech cards they have collected, commanders, androids, pirate medals, artifacts on the ship, and finally, everyone loses one point per damage counter still remaining on their ship. And I'm going to quote the rulebook for this last bit because it does a good job of showing kind of the tone of this game. The captain with the most points should tell the other, less accomplished captains, that they also performed very well under tough conditions. Try not to sound condescending. It's hard, I know. You have the best ship and the best crew, and that obviously means you are the best captain in the fleet. There's also a very cool bit that we always forget to do where you look up your final score and read your personal epilogue in the back of the rulebook, which is based on your final score. So I'm sure it's obvious, but just in case somehow someone missed it, Starship Captains is very obviously a non-licensed, but definitely Star Trek game without actually having the license at all. As soon as you see the cover of this game, you're going to know its roots. And while the game just calls them red, yellow, and blue ensigns, I think most sci-fi fans are going to know what those colors represent. Now that said, it's more of a lower decks game than one based on big fancy ships. You're not starting with a great crew or a healthy ship. No. You have a rough road ahead of you. Now, in addition to its Trek inspiration, there are lots of other sci-fi Easter eggs and references uh, to other licenses, uh, especially found on the various mission cards, like Investigate Alien Eggs. Um, now, this is not based on your hard science trek. No, this is very tongue-in-cheek. Uh, Sean's callback to Lower Decks, I think, is very appropriate here. Now, with the mechanics and rule description we gave, along with the publisher's previous track record, you might think you're uh, going to sit down to a heavy euro, all about micromanaging your crew. And that's not what you're actually getting with Starship Captains. This is more of a lighter romp. Having, having you move around the board, complete some missions, maybe blow up some pirates, laughing at some of the mission names and noticing some of the dark humor on the tech. Like you really aren't nice to pirates in this game. Honestly, this game doesn't feel like what I expect from a CGE game. Now, the quality and detail in the game does, 
But while yeah. Galaxy Trucker certainly has some of the comedy stylings, this one also has more of a random element than I expected. And knowing what this game is and what it does is the key to figuring out if it's going to be the right game for you and your group. My first play of Starship Captains came as a total shock because it wasn't at all what I expected. Now, I don't know exactly what I wanted from this game, but what I got that first play was not it. I think I wanted more of a complex Euro. I wanted something more like CGE's Dungeon Lords than CGE's Galaxy Truck. Yeah, I was completely shocked by my first play as well. I'm not actually a huge fan of Galaxy Trucker, so I wasn't even thinking about that when I sat down to play this. So the tone and randomness felt completely out of place. Now, all that said, while it wasn't what we expected and what I expected, I really enjoy it for what it is. But it took a second play to realize that. More so than any other game I played, the second play of Starship Captains completely changed my mind on the game. Going into it with the right expectations, knowing it's kind of this silly point salad with lots of random factors and isn't nearly as tight and punishing as I was expected, completely changed my enjoyment of the game in a positive way. And I couldn't agree more. My second play was night and day from my first, and it was just about those expectations being correctly aligned with the game. I knew what was coming, and the game met those expectations with fun gameplay and enough thinking despite the elements of randomness. Now, a good example of this is the queue system, which I didn't want to get into in too much detail in the how to play because I don't want people to think it's this huge, heavy thing you have to worry about. When I first heard about this game, I thought this was going to be the key element of play. This was the thing in this game is this queue that you have to manage and you're going to have to plan your moves like three, four turns in advance. And if you mess up in the first turn by using a character too early, you won't have it in the fourth turn. And in reality, it's really not that constraining. Well, yes, some members of your crew will get tied up, but there are so many ways to avoid that being an issue. Now, a big part of this is that promotion system with the medals. You don't have the crew member you need, just promote someone to the right color, whether that's an ensign or one of your, or, or a cadet. Medals are actually one of the most frequent rewards in the game, and they're pretty easy to get. And yes, you'll always want more medals, and you can't upgrade everyone you want, but they aren't like this super limited resource that you have to hoard. You can usually make the promotions you need when you need them to be able to do what you want to do. But then you add in the plentiful Tinkin rewards, it even matters less who you have stuck in the queue, as you can use a robot to collect so many of those mission rewards. So do remember the tin can refuse to actually activate your rooms. That's just beyond them, below them, sorry, below them. And then, like, even if you don't have the medals, right? You don't have the right crew. You don't have the medals. You can't complete the mission you're at. There are a variety of other missions, and the speed at which the missions change and rotate and repopulate the board, usually there's some valid option up, even with limited crew and crew types. Even if you can't do one thing, there's still something valid to do. Now, of course, it is a random game. The missions are randomized. And there is a chance you may just be stuck. But even then, your leftover crew can always be used to repair your ship. And that damage is negative points. You're going to want to fix it at some point. And though it doesn't happen often, you can always keep your crew to use in the next round. Now, one really tricky aspect that will catch you off guard and make you think far more than you expect is the layout of your tech cards. Yeah. The symbols on the sides, which you're trying to line up, are valuable rewards. But whoever designed these cards was not nice about it. You will grumble and growl about how things are laid out, and you will replace some and still not be completely happy. Yeah, and to be fair, I think the, the organization of tech cards is possibly has more of an impact on the game than that cube system. 
And that's really what this game ends up being is a bunch of puzzles for you to solve. That's what Starship Captains is. It's like this big puzzle. It's one that's not really about the queue, but rather about squeezing every last action you can through a combination of what you do and what order you do it in. And that's where your focus needs to be. Like it actually reminds me a bit of Lost Ruins of Arnak, where you figure out that perfect pattern of moves that let you avoid passing and get one more action in, or just get one more turn in before the end of the game. Now, this comes through a combination of rewards for completing missions, figuring out interesting ways to move without having to use your red crew to move, using androids to complete missions like Sean mentioned, defeating pirates and collecting mashing pairs of artifacts to get those extra actions in, and matching those tech card symbols, and of course, promoting your crew. Now, one thing to note that might have come across in the lengthy setup description is that it is a bit of a table hog mm. with two player boards, mission cards, faction boards, the main board, tech market, and all the tokens and extra figures. It really can add up. Yeah, I agree. It takes up more room than I expected it to. Overall, I, despite a not bad first experience, but but not what I expected at all, I ended up really enjoying Starship Captains. Like it, it took readjusting my expectations to get there. But now that I'm there, this is a fantastic game. It's it's a very fun, lighter than you would expect puzzle all about action optimization and squeezing out everything you possibly can using a limited number of crew and options. You don't get a lot of turns. There's only four turns in this entire game. And you have to make those turns count. Now, I will point out one potential negative that we have struggled with playing this game. There is one mechanic that is how you replace missions, as well as being a timing mechanism for pirate placement. Now, mm -hmm. while I'm not sure of a better way they could have implemented it, it's somewhat fiddly. And if something is going to get forgotten or played wrong, this is the mechanic. So be yeah. aware of moving and flipping your numbers every time a mission is completed. Yeah, I, I have yet to play a game where this didn't get forgotten at least once, where someone went to move and you're like, wait a minute, there's no card there. Wait, where, why, when did that happen? When did you complete that mission? It has happened every time. Uh, so yeah, that, it, I, I, I'm with Sean though. I don't know how they could have done it better. I don't, I don't know if there's any indicator. Maybe they should have put it on the back of the mission cards because when you complete your mission, you put it face down so everyone's scores are kind of hidden. Um, and it just said, you know, whatever, check next number in big bold letters. I don't know what they could have done. Now, one thing also to be aware of, um, speaking of expectations for this game, this is not a bridge simulator. There are other games out there that try to simulate that feeling. This is not one of those games. This doesn't really make you feel like a member of a Starship crew. Instead, it's zoomed out. It's higher level. You're the captain of the ship, responsible for all its... But it's also not so far zoomed out that it's a tactical game. There's no Starship combat here, other than literally you take a yellow action and collect a pirate token. Like, that, that's not a battle system. There's no real combat. And this is also not a game for uh, fans of the genre about managing your energy level and transferring power from lay support to shields. And while you're completing missions, you certainly don't feel like you're beaming down to a planet. No. And even the faction interactions are quite abstract, moving around a board. This is, for a large part, a human resources management puzzle game. Now, if you ever wanted to be the head of HR and sit in the captain's chair on a starship and uh, come up with your own saying for when the warp drives turn on, uh, you'll probably dig Starship Captains. It's a fun sci-fi point salad that's got a great flow and plays much quicker and easier than you would expect, especially from a CGE game. If you're looking for a serious game with nothing to distract you from the perfect execution of a plan to maximize your points, you're going to be disappointed, as this has plenty of randomness and doesn't take itself seriously. No. While it is a Euro, 
it's very much on the lighthearted side, if not mechanically light. Now, you don't have to be a fan of Trek or other popular sci-fi to enjoy Starship Captains either. While it has been a huge fit with my fit, uh, hit, not a fit, a huge hit with my Trekkie fans, um, other players not so familiar with the license, and my kids, who actually don't really know Trek at all. Yeah, I know, I'm a bad geek parent. Um, they also dig it. So there's, uh, to me, the license is a bonus and you're, you're going to get more of the inside jokes. But other than that, uh, they literally call the crew red, blue, and yellow. You don't need to know that blue is science. Now, our mission here is done. We have successfully imparted knowledge of starship captains to the people of Earth. Now we can only hope that they take that knowledge and use it for the betterment of humanity or at least to make their own fun game nights. Now, we've seen a number of these based on a licensed but not actually licensed board game over the years. We mentioned some earlier this episode. What's your favorite game that was clearly inspired by a license but doesn't actually have that license on the box cover? This could be sci-fi like we were talking about tonight, but it could be something else. I would love to hear about it in the comments. Support our efforts to explore strange new games, seek out new themes and mechanics, and to boldly review games that have probably been reviewed before by tipping your bellhop over at patreon.com slash tabletop bellhop. It's time to talk about as we review Mlem from Rebel Studio, who we have to thank for sending us this meme-inspired dice chucker. Mlem Space Agency was designed by Rainer Nietzsche a name most board game fans are going to know pretty well. It features some rather striking artwork, odd for a Nitsia game, from Joanna Zapetska. It was just released earlier this week. How's that for new hotness for you from us? By our friends at Rebel Studio. This competitive push-your-luck dice game plays two to five players and is better the more people play. Games take about an hour at the highest player counts, getting shorter with fewer players. As a family weight game, this one is good for gamers of all ages, though younger kids may need a bit of help with some of the strategy involved. In Lem, players will be sending their team of cats into space. Each round, the commander chooses which of their cats will lead the mission. Each of their cats has a special ability, then in turn, each other player will contribute one cat to the crew until the ship is loaded with one cat from each player. The commander then blasts off through a push-your-luck style dice system. Once into space, you'll encounter various moons and planets, and if you go far enough, deep space. At each leg of the journey, players will have the option to disembark their cats from the ship, earning points in the form of cat toys for where they land. Progress is never guaranteed, though, and at any point, the commander's luck could fail and the ship could crash. Don't worry, though. Everyone gets their cats back, nine lives, and all that. The ship passes to the next player, who then gets to be the next commander. This game does have some striking artwork and fantastic components, including one of the best neoprene mat style boards we've ever seen first party. Yeah. Now see all this and more in our Mlem unboxing video on YouTube. Yeah, that mat really is great, but it's long. Uh, so table size can be a concern here. I don't think it would fit on like your standard fold out card table. Now, the rest of the components do stick out as great as well. The dice, while they look like they're just D6s, and I would have sworn they were D6s until I did the unboxing video, are actually custom dice. The player boards are nice and thick cardboard instead of just card. The scoring tokens have these cool toy artwork on them. Uh, the bonus medals look like actual medals, and honestly, my kids are like, can we get some of these made in real life? The rule book is solid with lots of white space, tons of examples, and a great summary on the back of the book. It's also short enough that you could probably get away while reading it if someone else was punching the cardboard so you could get the table right away. Get to the table right away. Now, speaking of rules, here's an overview of how Mlem plays. 
You start by rolling out the playing mat and giving each player a player board and the eight hat tokens in their preferred color. The starting player, who's the last player to claim the litter box, gets the ship board and the six custom dice. That's it. That's pretty much it for setup. Each round, the player with the shipboard will pick one of their cats to command the ship. Then each other player going around the table will contribute one of their cats to the voyage. Each cat has a different ability that will affect the upcoming voyage. So three of the cats are pretty simple to explain. They just score double points if they land on the feature that matches the cat type. There's a times two point cat for planets, one for moons, and one for deep space. If the ship blows up, any parachute cats can choose to land at the spot the ship crashed if there's room. The satellite cat lets the voyage start a little further up the launch track on the board. Now, having multiple satellite cats on the same voyage does do nothing. You either have one or you don't. There's a plus or minus one cat that can choose to disembark from the ship at the spot it's on or at the spots just before or after the one landed on. Then there's the one pip cat that can be used once as if it was a die with one pip showing. Multiple one pip cats can be on the same voyage, but each one can only be used once. You flip them over to show this. Finally, there's the nasty lose-a-die cat. When this cat disembarks, the current captain loses one die for the rest of the voyage, unless they were already on their last die. Now, once everyone's boarded their cats onto the ship, the commander rolls the dice and then sorts them by matching sides. Now, these are custom dice. They include one rocket booster symbol, two two-pip sides, and one side each showing one, three, or four pips. You then compare the roll of the dice to what's shown on the current spot the rocket token is on on the mat. Only dice sets that match what is shown on the mat at your location can be used. Other dice should be placed on the mat, and then the commander picks which remaining dice to use. They can use any number of sets from one roll, but they must use a full set. So if you have three twos and you want to use them, you, can, you have to move six. You can't move only two or four. Now, once decided, you move the ship the total number of all chosen dice. Now, any dice used for movement are then lost. Uh, we recommend passing them to the next captain to use when it's their turn. That is except for those rocket booster dice. You get to use those again, and their value ranges from one to three based on the symbol shown on the map. If none of the dice rolled, including your available bonuses, match any of the symbols on the map at your location, the voyage was a disaster. The cosmic failure marker is moved one on the track at the bottom of the map, and everyone still on the ship gets their cats back, except those with parachute cats who have the option of landing those cats instead of getting them back. Now, after each successful roll of the dice, everyone, starting with the captain, gets a chance to disembark from the ship. Each space on the board after the first seven or so connects to either a number of moons or a planet. Each moon has a number on it that represents the points you'll get if you land a cat there, and each moon can only hold one cat. Planets, on the other hand, can hold any number of cats, but don't score until the end of the game, where it's awarded on a majority fashion. In addition to moons and planets, the very end of the board features two spots, representing deep space. If your rocket makes it to deep space, the first cat to disembark gets a special reward of seven points, and everyone else earns five. Remember when collecting points to take into account if a two times point cat was used. Now note that if the current commander disembarks their cat for the other players, the next cat in line becomes the new commander and the dice should be passed to that player who now makes all further dice decisions on the voyage. Note you don't pass the shipboard though, as turn order isn't affected by the order the cats depart. Instead, after each voyage, successful or not, the shipboard is then passed clockwise, and that player becomes the new commander and picks which cat they will use first. They will roll all of the dice for the next turn, etc. throughout the turn. Now, when disembarking their cats, players are also competing to earn medals. 
There are four of these, and they're awarded to the player who first accomplishes the goal on that medal. There's a medal for having cats on four moons, having cats on four different planets, having three cats on the same planet, and one for having two cats in deep space. The game continues until a player has played all of their cats, or the Cosmic Failure token reaches the end of its track, which is 11 spaces long. Cats in the future have evolved to have 11 lives instead of 9. Points are then awarded for each planet, and then players total their scores. The player with the most points wins. Those are pretty much the full rules for a basic game of Blem, a very straightforward push-your-luck dice game. Now, Rebel Studio has also included three variants in the rulebook of each, mm -hmm. which adds a bit more strategy and player agency to the game. So the UFO variant involves placing a UFO meeples token out in deep space and a set of randomized expedition tokens. At the start of each round, the commander will draw the top token from this stack. This will probably move the UFO closer to the start and will indicate what dice the captain will have for this voyage and a bonus they'll get. Note that captain and commander are being used interchangeably here because Mo is used to the last game where we accidentally used commander or captain instead of commander, but there's yes. commander and captain is the same in this game. Now, while you may not start with six dice, these bonuses are quite powerful and include things like being able to keep a set of dice after spending them, a free reroll of any number of dice or sets of virtual dice that can be spent as if you rolled those numbers during the voyage. Now, the only other change is a new stack of UFO scoring tokens that start at five, and there's five of them they count down to one. If the commander or captain can get their rocket to stop on the same spot as the UFO, they get to claim the top token from the pile. Now, the next variant adds explorations to the game. This is a stack of exploration tokens, one for almost every spot on the board. You shuffle these and then draw five and place them on the appropriate spots. If a commander lands on one of these, they get a bonus and then a new token is drawn. Bonuses include gaining one to three points, regaining a die, or warping ahead on the rocket track. Now, the final optional rules are for secret missions. At the start of the game, each player gets a set of four tiles, each of which shows a single moon or one of the planets. Everyone chooses three of these to keep, and then will try to land a cat on each of these specific places. At the end of the game, they get bonus points for the number of the missions they completed, either two, five, or ten points. Blem is exactly the kind of game you expect from Nitya, except that it looks fantastic as well. Yeah, Rainer is known for thinky math-based games that usually don't have much of a theme. The mechanics in Blem fit that style perfectly. This game is all about rolling dice, figuring out your odds at each step, and then deciding if you want to push your luck or not. But remember, this is a family weight game good for kids. The odds aren't hard to figure out, and honestly, you don't really have to figure out them at all if you just want to chuck the dice and have some fun. Now, unlike Mo, I'm not a Knizia fan. These games generally don't do much for me. Yet I found this one, while well, certainly on the lighter side, was really a fun game, especially for that family vibe. While the theme and, the, and certainly the name is silly, the game isn't. It's straightforward and understandable. Yeah, the dice system here is actually solid and very interesting, It's it's which comes about by not using standard D6 dice. The odds aren't always what you'd expect. And then there's the fact that the one side has rockets, and if you roll rockets often... But not always. When you do this, you can keep dice between turns. But the interesting part is the designer here puts spaces where rockets don't work. So it's kind of interesting the way that plays out. And this all leads to a variety in how each actual voyage, each, each full turn plays out. Like sometimes you don't even get far enough to score any points. And then on the next run, with the exact same odds and dice and things in play, you find yourself in deep space, even though you totally planned on getting off at the first planet. 
I think one of the biggest selling points of this game are those dice. If they were just D6, it would be more straightforward and obvious as to the odds, and it would become almost a simple betting game. And then the entire system for disembarking and choosing which cats to send each mission is just interesting and fun. And the most fun part of this game to me is that it leads to this weird mix of semi-cooperative play and then take that play like interchangeably and you never know which it's going to be at the start of each round. And I find that so fascinating. Like some turns, everyone's all on board. Like, no, we're going to go as far as we can. We're going to go to deep space. I'm going to give you a satellite to make sure we get it there. I'm going to give you my one cat. I'm going to give you another one cat. And the last player's like, oh, I'm putting on my two times because we're going to make it this turn. And then the next time you go around, it's like, no, no, I'm going to use a takeaway, a die cat. Um, I'm putting a parachute cat because you're not getting anywhere. And you, everyone's hoping the ship crashes as soon as possible. But then, of course, it doesn't crash and all the players are groaning because some lucky roll means the voyage went way further than they thought. So that's only the base game. Yeah. So this entire system gets much more interesting once you toss in the optional rules. And I had a feeling the first time I played the game, I'm like, okay, neat, push your luck, family weight game. But I want to get to those optional rules because I think that's that's where the pudding is going to be. And it is, in my opinion, because everyone you add adds more interesting decision points ways to mitigate bad die rolls, and overall just giving the active player, the commander, more agency over what's going to happen. And I greatly appreciate that in this type of game. I think the average hobby gamer is going to want to toss those in right away, perhaps even including all three variants in your first game. And like when I taught the game to Sean, he'd never played it before. I just threw it all at him because I figured he's played games before. He's going to get it. It's just more interesting when you're not just trying to go as far as possible because without the expansions, Generally, you just want to go as far as possible and score as high up on the track. With the variance, though, you do end up with a slightly longer game. There is more decision points. Um, We've noticed we get further because there's a way to mitigate those bad rolls, and the scores do end up higher. And I think all of those are good things. That said, I do like that I still got that base game, right? If I bring it out to a barbershop bar game night and it's 10 at night and most people are heading home and we decide to stay for another round, I don't want those optional rules. Yeah, the fact that players are no longer simply optimizing for the furthest point when when you've got those expansions in really shifts the game strategies as you can no longer guarantee the same rationality as in the base game. And that's one thing that the Nitsia games are kind of focused on. It's that rational, almost economic play. Now, as for theme, honestly, I couldn't care less about cats in space. I I, I admit it. I had to look up what Malem meant um, uh, if... You were here for our last live stream. I think you got to see us look up what Malem meant at the, during our after show. Now, my kids, on the other hand, they saw that and are like, oh, my God, oh, my God, there's a game called Malem. It's about cats in space. Like they, I hadn't seen my kids as excited about a new game showing up on our porch or on our door than I did for this game. The only thing they're actually disappointed by is the fact Rebel Studio didn't send the Blep mini expansion. And yes, I had to look up what Blep meant, too. Sorry, I'm old. Now, I have found out in since that the BLEP expansion is actually an FLGS only um, standalone expansion that you can only get if you pick up the game from local game stores. So yay for supporting your local store. Now, as for tying the theme to the mechanics, uh, it's 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 Nitsia. It's it's a mathy dice game, but it is tied in through the artwork, at least. And yeah, the multiple puns in the rule book. So that's kind of nice. Like, I love that the point tokens are cat toys. Something about that, I'm just like, that's awesome. The point tokens are cat toys. And you're going to upgrade your one ball of yarn for a fish toy for three. And, 
like that that fascinates me i think that's really cool and i love the look of the planets like there's a one planet's a ball of yarn another's a scratching post mechanically though this is a knitzia game and there's not a lot of thematic crossover like honestly i like at least give us nine different cats at least the, there's some tie into the theme there no, it's interesting. Even the player boards with their really nice thick cardboard are completely extraneous. Yeah. They give you a surface to put things on and some fun art with a hint of the player color, but that's it. Uh, even the rocket ship. You could just line up the cat tokens in front of any player. They, like You don't need that rocket, but then you get this cool, nice big rocket that looks pretty. They even did a two-sided. I don't even know if you ever flipped the rocket, but it looks awesome on the other side. Like I said artwork tie-in, fantastic. Thematic tie-in to mechanics, not so much. Overall, I had more fun with Mlem than I expected, uh, especially once tossing in the variant rules. Like, honestly, I agreed to review this one for my kids. I, I thought they were going to dig it, and I was right. Like, I, I've never seen my kids so excited when a board game showed up. They both love it. Um, Both kids love the theme. Um, They were easily picked up on the mechanics and the probabilities involved. Uh, they all agree with me that they like the expansions. Um, though the youngest did find once we put in the third expansion, it got to be just too many chips and things to manage. So with her, we keep that one out. Um, they both dig pushing their luck and they are the type of kids that like everyone leans over the table when the dice are about to be rolled and like, you know, cheering or, oh yeah, we did it. Keep going. The one that shocked me though was Brenda, my mother-in-law, who we tend to play with on weekend game nights was particularly taken with this one. Like she actually said, um, please bring this over next week and noted something about having just the right amount of thinking required. Like you have to think about what you're doing to play well, but you never have to think too hard. I found this game was something I could very much see playing over drinks with friends, especially just that base game, rolling some dice, moving along a track and laughing at what did or didn't happen. And once you yeah. add in those expansions, though, it does become more of a thinking game, but not too much. I just might not want to manage all the extra components while I was relaxing. Yeah, which is honestly what, what Genevieve's problem with the game was, I think. It was it was trying to remember which planet she wanted to land on while thinking about how far she wants to move. It was just a little too much. Now, the other thing I do feel I have to call out about this game, and this is a positive thing that I'm still baffled by. This game is ridiculously cheap for what you get. Like the neoprene mat is one of the biggest contributors to the cost of the game, but also the amount of cardboard. Just like I showed it off in the review, I'm like, there's a lot of cardboard in here because there's tiles and tokens and player boards on a rocket ship and scoring counters. And then the fact it's custom dice. These aren't just, you know, standard factory D6s that are in here. These are screen printed dice. And there's even like gold UV spot coating on the box for those who enjoy that kind of thing. Honestly, the price point almost seems like a mistake, but apparently it's not. Oh, I, I have to assume they, they printed a lot of copies or something. I, I don't understand. Like, this is a $30 US game. That's it. So if you dig, push your luck games, especially dice-driven ones. You're going to love Mlem. It has that. It feels like an Inizia game. It, it, you can tell it was well-designed. It was play-tested. The mechanics have probably been rattling around in his brain for 10 years before he put it down. It's an Inizia game without any of the brain burn, though. You can play it quick and furious, or you can take your time figuring out the odds, and both ways are just as fun. Fans of the old Sid Saxon can't stop will likely love this one as well. Now, Malem was published with families in mind. Rebel Studios has produced a bunch of family weight games, and I think this fits that family game night genre perfectly. It's super quick to set up, which is something you don't have to worry about with kids, and you get playing right away. It's simple enough to teach and play that even younger kids should get it, but it's also engaging enough with enough hard decisions that even the most experienced hobby gamers can have fun playing it. 
which is especially true if you toss in the advanced rules. Now, if high randomness push your luck style games aren't your jam, you can probably avoid Mlem with a clear conscience. These style of dice games aren't for everyone, and even if you play the odds perfectly, that doesn't mean you're going to come out on top. This isn't chess or go or even checkers. You live and die here by dice rolls. Now, of course, there's also those people out there that just love cats and will want anything cat-themed. And for them, all I have to say is, well, we probably had you at Cats in Space, but sleep well knowing you're also getting a very solid game and not just a cute theme. Well, our rolls were good and we had the right crew, so we've managed to pull off another successful game review. What we would love to see next are some comments letting us know what your favorite Push Your Luck games are. Now, if you don't care to comment here, feel free to hit me up on social media where I can be found everywhere as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. You can send me an email to mo at tabletopbellhop.com. And now in the Bellhop's Tabletop, we look back at the games we played since last episode. All right, uh, I'm going to start off with a new-to-me game. It's off the pile of obligation and pile of shame. Um, that is My City from Cosmos Games. Uh, this is another Rainer Nitzia game, which is very different from Lem we just reviewed. And I used it as a great example to the kids of how the same designer can put out two very different games. Uh, this is a 24-part legacy game that we've decided to play with the kids. So it's Deanna, Gwen, Jen, and myself. Um, this was one we had to sit down and have a conversation with the kids. Like, are you going to be willing to play the same game 24 times? Um, and, and sat down and I was seriously concerned about my youngest daughter who does have some learning disabilities and issues with focus, uh, but they wanted to, they were in, so we'll see if they stick through it. Well, yeah, I mean, this is a big step. Uh, also, I mean, convincing anyone to play 24, a game 24 times can be a stretch these days. Um, and, and your kids, uh, you know, they're very much used to living in a family with a board game reviewer. So if they play something for more than a month, uh, that's, that's pretty impressive. You know, a, a yep. month of games on weekends is about what most of they're going to see, except for the ones that they fall in love with and bring to school. Yeah, exactly. Now, one thing that did sell me is that really it's kind of eight games. It's eight game sessions more so than 24 games. Cause each game is surprisingly short and they expect you to play through one season of the game per sitting. So three individual games in one setting completes a chapter. So once I realized it's eight games, or eight game nights, eight times sitting down to play games versus 24 times sitting down. It seemed a lot more manageable. Absolutely. Although I, I, I would say that that might actually be more of a killer for some people who would rather play a bunch of games in one night rather than the same game three times in a row. At right. Once. Uh, again, that depends on, uh, depends on who's all involved, but, uh, that, that could actually be a deal breaker for some people. I think. So really you're looking at like 15 minute to half hour games. So you're going to get three games in, in the time you'd normally get in one game. So I think you'd still have room for those multiple game nights. Though, as he mentions in the chat, uh, she does wonder if the individual games do get longer eventually. Now that is highly possible. And I can't answer that question (laughs) yet because all we've done so far is played the first. See, I can't remember if they're called years, seasons or chapters, whatever. We played the first chapter. So for those who don't know the game, this is a bingo game, right? It's one of those same input, different output. Everyone is going to get the same input, which is place this specific polyomino building onto a map that shows an overland area. Everyone starts with the same board and every round a building's flipped and everyone has to place it. Now, your first building has to go next to the river, which kind of runs down the middle of the board. And then each subsequent one has to be touching an existing building. And that's basically the core mechanics of my city. 
So you're going to start out, you, you, but even with the river start, uh, coming down the middle, you're still not necessarily going to be starting in the same place as any no. other player, which means the variation starts right from uh, point yep. one, even if you aren't allowed to use the entire board for placing that piece. Yeah. And, and honestly, it was interesting because after the, like the first game, no one placed the same, but I think it was the third game. Three of us placed our first building in the exact same spot. So it's going to happen sometime. Now, when you first start the game, I, again, don't worry, no spoilers here. Um, you are just trying to cover as much of the map as you can. You want to cover up rocks, but leave trees exposed. At the end of the game, once you've gone through the entire deck or everyone's decided I've given up, I'm done, I don't want to touch my map anymore, you calculate your points. The winner is going to mark dots on their individual board. Anyone who's played Charterstone is going to be used to this, where you kind of fill out your little board at the end. Um, the person in first gets two dots. The person in second gets one. That's going to be your overall campaign score at the end. You're going to look at how many dots people have filled in. And I got to say, there's a lot of room for dots. So that could be interesting. Then you place stickers. Now, interestingly, as a catch-up mechanic, the victor is punished. At this point in the game, you're going to put more rocks on your board. The person in second just gets off free. They, they get their point. They go to the next game. No changes. Other players, though, if you're playing with three or four, get a bonus. In this case, get to place new trees. And again, trees good, rocks bad. Is there any way to get your rocks off on the board or? Uh, that was the wording, phrasing. <laughs> I need <laughs> the phrasing meme there. You cannot get the rocks off of the board. <laughs> no, now I'm broken. <laughs> All right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so with those rules. By the end of the second round, we've scored twice. Two different people have won. The rankings have been different. We had unique boards, like completely unique. Now, now, no matter what, it's different because our boards are all unique. So the D had more rocks than anyone else. I had a tree. One of the other kids had a tree and one of the other kids, their boards are still like the starting board. But like by the end of the second game, the whole bingo thing that I love where, you know, we all have the same input. We technically could all do the same thing. No, it's it's gone out the window from, from turn one for every game in the rest of the campaign. Now, I don't want to say much more, even though I, I don't think if I told people what's in chapter one would really spoil anything because everyone starts at chapter one. Um, but I will say that each section added some new scoring rules and the final section added a new feature. And that was something that got added to everyone's map and featured a new way to score. So there's, you're not, it's not like anyone's getting buried. If you've, you've made a couple no. of mistakes, you know, they're, they're keeping it fair. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are still winners and losers, but again, even if you win, you get two points. If you come in second, you get one. And if you lose, you get none. So the overall score for the game, your spreads at most two points, but your boards are evolving. And that person who's in the lead is, as I'm going to assume every chapter probably keep putting bad things on their board and the people who do badly get to put good things, which should balance everything out. Seems to be working really well. Now, what I thought was most fascinating is that the progression was surprisingly neat, since basically you are playing the exact same game with the exact same polynomials with the same deck of cards on the same map over and over. But it was cool to see how just a minor little rule change made that feel completely fresh from game one to game two. And then when you get to game three going, oh, now I have this other thing to worry about, which totally changes all the plans and, you know, anything I figured out in game one about how buildings fit together didn't matter once I had to worry about other aspects of those buildings. I am really looking forward to chapter two. I don't know when we're going to get to play again. Um, the envelope says churches. My guess is we're going to have some new tiles, but I have no idea. Yeah, and it's interesting. I, this this seems to, at least, again, you're, you're, you've barely started, but at this point, yeah. it is still less asymmetric than Charterstone. 
uh, yes. you know, Charterstone changed things a lot, and there were some big, big differences in in how things go, went, depending on on how you played and what choices you made. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, while everyone is different and everything is very different, uh, you're not playing vastly different games to no. that level. No, you're still trying to cover up most of your board. You still want trees to show. You still want to cover up the rocks. You still don't want any empty spots on your board by the end. It just there's a few other things you now have to consider as well. So who knows? I, I, I have heard a lot of people complain that the game was too simple at the beginning, but oh my God, if you finish it, it's amazing. So I'm looking forward to that. I will say I don't find the game too simple now. It's it's enjoyable polyamogo game. Like I, it's it's not overly complicated. There's not too much to think about. It's nice and quick. It's fun to see what people are doing different than you. Like, I got to say, I have great joy if I place first and I'm done and I kind of look around and see what everyone else is doing. And I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. That, that fits interesting. And pretty quickly you realize that, oh, the deck is each of the polyominoes, which I should have known right from the beginning, but obviously it is. And like that first game, you're just putting stuff here and there, right? By the third game though, you're like, I have these tiles left. I have to make sure I leave room for them, right? It's just fascinating game right from the start, in my opinion. Though I do wonder if the difference between playing with your family and playing with your, you know, regular board game group might affect how the, the how how yeah. easy that feels at the beginning. That's true. I that's true. I I only have one copy of the game, so <laughs> I won't be able to talk about it as playing with a bunch of highly competitive Euro gamers. It felt like this. You're not going to get that from me this time. So up next, I co-hosted a barbershop bar game night. Uh, not a big crowd, but at peak time, we had four tables of games going, which is pretty good. Um, started off with me sitting down and teaching a game of the Artipers project. Uh, we just reviewed that last week. Um, I packed satellites and commanders. I had hoped to get that to the table, but while people were sorting out the boards, I decided, no, nah, you know what? We'll put that aside because there were two totally new players to the game. I got that one started, then went off to teach a three-player game of Starship Captains, which we just reviewed, which honestly went over way better than I expected. And this was something that actually upped my opinion of the game and its design and how well it's done. Because one of the players who sat down, let me set up the game, let me start teaching the game, and then went, wait a minute, this isn't cooperative? And I'm like, no, it's not cooperative, it's competitive. Why well, don't play competitive games? And I'm like, excuse me? And he's like, no, no, I don't like competitive games. People take them far too seriously. And I said, well, okay, well, the interactions in this You're never directly going to attack another player. You're never going to do anything negative to another player. The only way you can really do anything is you might take a card they want or move to a spot they were hoping to go to, but there'll be plenty of other options. They're like, all right, fine, I'll try it. And they played and they ended up winning. So that was interesting. And and I explained the whole thing where, you know, the game's not as limiting as it looks. There's always other variable options if you don't get your first choice. And this person who normally wouldn't even play a competitive game won. And the other player who played loved it so much, they wrote me two days later to thank them for teaching the game and how much they liked it. So, yeah, no, again, it's, it's not quite, you know, uh multiplayer solitaire. No, uh, it's not, but, but, but it's close enough that, uh, again, you know, it, it's got that Star Trek, everyone's happy feeling, but there are pirates out there that you're fee- occasionally feeding into uh food processors. Yes. <laughs> I, that, Yet again, this game, there was, there was a thing you could do with, with pirates. And I was just like, what are you doing with these pirates? Yeah. Um, I, I, I had, I had a tech that let me trade in a pirate to remove, to reduce damage by one. And I'm like, what, what are you doing with these pirates? Scraping the barnacles off with, uh, with the, the pirate crew. <laughs> I, I, all I could think of is maybe the pirate represents you captured their ship and not an actual pirate, but that wasn't clear from the rule book. 
And I was like, okay, maybe it's like plating. I'm putting on my ship from the pirate ship. Because, well, of course, we were talking about strapping people to the outside of our ships as armor, which I think they might have had the Reavers do in, Star, in, in that Firefly game. Right. Anyway, <laughs> other games I saw played, multiple rounds of 8-Minute Empire, Camel Up, Fort. Um, there were more. Dudge Mayhem, I think. Um, when we were getting near the end of the event, because people tend to filter out once once it gets to like nine o'clock, people tend to finish their games and they they head home. I was just Deanna, Gwen, and I who happened to be not playing or teaching anything. So I brought out our review copy of Cartographer's Heroes. Um, this is uh, the first review game we've ever gotten from Thunderworks Games, so it'll be nice to to work with them. And we fumbled through a learning game, and and um, it's it was a learning game. It was extreme, and we fumbled a lot. Uh, we tumbled. We we fell down the hill. Um, the play and teach was rough and slightly, I can blame it on a less than intuitive rule book. And I think that's being a little polite and I don't even know how they'd fix it. It just having read so many great rule books recently, lemon starship captains being great examples of very clear. Everything's where I expected to find it. Lots of examples to this little tiny book with a bunch of words that thought they were teaching me how to play. It was a little rough. This is actually one thing that, that we don't do and it might actually be an interesting thing to try. So I don't normally see the rule books other than when you unbox yep. the game. Uh, you teach games. That's what you do. Uh, and, and we are generally happy to let you do that. Um, but it would be interesting to, to see, you know, especially on games that I haven't played yet for me right. to crack open the rule book. It's pretty rare that we can't find a copy of a PDF rule book these days. Although we <laughs> so have noted sure that there are the some most up to date. They are there this summer, not as we learn up to date. Yes. But, uh, you know, for me to be able to read the rule book and come and sit down and for it to make sense, uh, quickly yeah. and easily, uh, you know, without maybe even a full teach, uh, depending on the rule book. Uh, but to have that experience of, Oh, this, I, I read the rule book and, I have no idea what I'm getting into with this game, or I read the rule book and I could set up and play this game without ever having opened the box. Right. Oh, it's, it's not a bad idea. The one I keep thinking, I, I keep forgetting when it happens is when we finish up a game night, I'm tempted to like, here, take the rule book home with you and read it and see, see what we did to extreme. <laughs> Cause I've already read it twice. Maybe I missed something. Now, as for the game, cartographer seems solid. I have not played. This is technically like a second edition or revised version of cartographers. It's cartographers heroes. Um, once we had everything figured out and I got to say that I'm glad it was just D Gwen and I, cause I, I, I'm glad we did that because now next time I could definitely better explain it. Um, especially answering certain questions about how you use cards. Now, for anyone who doesn't know cartographers heroes, this is a flip and write where you're building a fantasy kingdom flip over a card. Then everyone draws that feature somewhere on, on their own personal map. And I realize as describing it, just how similar to my city it is really. <laughs> um, for most cards, you're either going to pick which shape to draw or which terrain type to um, put in that shape. And sometimes you get to decide both um, while flipping up these cards. There's also a chance other things will happen. Now there are four randomized starting cards and you're going to score two per round. So there's like ABCD cards. You're going to score A and B and then B and C and then C and D and then D and A. So it works out that all of the different scoring options happen twice. And that took a bit to get our head around that. Oh, wait, I'm still trying to build forests when I'm never scoring them again. Um, for example, we had one that was literally the longest column of forests on your map. Another one was called something like Gnomish Village and you got rewarded for two by two squares of town terrain. Okay. So, and each of those would score twice. Right. 
around things, but then but the if it explored twice, more, one was you, you could Dwarven, ignore it. Dwarven Civilizations, I think it was, and that was like you had to have a full rower column that had a mountain in it, and then uh, the other one had to do with farms being near water. I I can't remember. Now there's a deck of these two, and we just used like the the starting recommended starting scoring things. So there is that. Right now. I think that some, something Eggman said in the chat's making me second guess this. I might be off on this. From what I understand, Cartographer's Heroes is an update to Cartographer's and added heroes and monster cards. Now, I don't know if that, I might be off on that. But what happens is you're going to shuffle in one hero and one monster in the deck during the first season. And then in the second season, you're going to add one more and one more. And the interesting part is if they come out, they stay out. Well, in our game, no monsters came up until winter. And <laughs> so... Winter was a rough for us with all kinds of monster attacks. And what's neat is when a monster comes up, you actually pass your sheet to one of your opponents and it shows on the card if you go left or right, who then draws the monster on your map. And I'm like, that's just a neat mechanic. And then heroes, on the other hand, have like they take up, you draw a sword on your map, but then have like an attack pattern. And if those hit monsters, they kill the monsters and they defend spaces from people drawing monsters. It's neat. This isn't meant to be any anything close to a rule teach. But I got to say the heroes and monsters definitely added an interesting aspect to the game. They really gave it that fantasy feel, even though really you're drawing odd abstract things on a grid. So cartographer heroes is the sequel to cartographers, but can, uh, you can actually yep. uh, be played on its Holy. own or mix in components from the original yep. game for even more. And there are a number of expansions for the originals. So that really yes. kind of gives you a huge amount of replayability for this. It game. does. It does. So yeah, Eggman saying monsters were in the original. Maybe the heroes weren't. Like maybe there was no way to kill monsters in the original. I don't know. I I didn't play the original. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, fortunately, just... brave heroes have risen to the defense of Nalos. So it it really does seem like heroes are it. But there uh... were monsters, and and like the other thing I know is on all of my maps, there's little ruined squares. Mm. Those do nothing in this version of the game. Oh, They're only there if you're playing with the original rules, which I don't know. I I could look them up. So anyway, uh, it was fun. It it it, it is. Or a flip and write extremely thinky, holy long-term strategy. Like, like you see those scoring cards from the beginning of the game. It's open information. And you know, in fall, you're going to score that D card. And in winter, you're also going to score that D card. So you've got two seasons to build up to score that. But if you're doing that, you're probably ignoring scoring what's scoring this turn. Like, like surprisingly thinky for a flip and write. Um, with the monster thing, not as much multiplayer solitaire as I expected. And honestly, it's not even as much a bingo game, even though you're flipping up the same card, because there's multiple options of what to draw on each card. So uh, you're going to like this one, I think. Um, the only complaint I have is I already just want to go buy colored pencils, cheapest I can find at the dollar store, and put in multiple, you know, greens for the forest, browns for the, the, the cities, because drawing the little symbols is just annoying. Crayons probably even cheaper, actually. <laughs> yeah crayons or whatever just something and of course i played with my daughter who's the artist who had to make everything look pretty right but at least she tended to do that between turns <laughs> that's yeah that's that, that's the key you don't you don't necessarily want to wait for the artist uh during your turn but yes she had the most beautiful beautiful map by the end of the thing and we know some and great yes, cartographers it, it, we could connect her up with if she wants to get into that i mean you know we we've got connections there yes there we go and honestly i'm, I'm gonna say the sean thing and i don't usually say it, it made me feel it might make a really good digital game <laughs> Where you can just click, click, you know, click, rotate, rotate, click. Right. Probably work really good. And they can make it all, oh, man, they can make it look awesome if they like did a steam, you know, full on 
Like they did with Terraforming Mars for no reason with little animated things. Well, what we need to get is a branded version from some of the different cartographers we know. I mean, think oh, about, you, you know, getting, uh, getting your own custom version with maps by, you know, fill in, uh, fill in the blank. There you go. All right. We're going to be here all night if I don't keep going. So <laughs> Sunday, Mug Club Social out at Bandit Ghost Brewery. I managed to fit it into the schedule, but uh, none of our usual stops. I usually try to make that a full day deal where we stop at coffee shops and bakeries. No, we just went out to Kingsville, got our got our free round of beers, um, had some really good, um, they call them tachos, which were tater tot pulled pork nachos. And finally, again, off the pile of obligation and shame, another game new to me, Zensu. Which you guys have been now, looking this forward game, to for a lot, for a while. Yeah, every abstract strategy game. Likes to claim, simple to learn, difficult to master. Zensu had the balls to put it on the box. And honestly, they deserve it. I don't think I have ever found a game that is more simple, but oh my God, is it hard to win? This is a six by nine grid at opposite ends, seats the each of the, the player's pieces. One set's red, one's green. Not that that really matters. You have two rows of pieces that go in the back two columns. The front row of the pieces are all the same. And they give you the following move options. Move forward one, move left four, move right two, or back three. The back row are also the same pieces, but different set. These ones are move forward two, move left one, move back four, or move right three. Now, this is printed on every single tile, so you don't have to remember that. It's all right there, right in front of your face, staring at you when you mess it up. Players take turns moving. Move one of your pieces, what it says on the tile. Trying to get one, just one, you don't have to do any more, to reach the opponent's edge of the board, the opposite side. When moving, you can jump over pieces, yours or opponent's. You can land on opponent's pieces, but not your own. Any pieces landed on are captured, and any of your opponent's pieces you jump are captured. That's it. I just taught you how to play Zensu. Sit down and try to beat me at it with having five games under my belt, and you're going to be lost. That's what this game is. Yeah, this is this is checkered's checkers to the X level. I mean, again, it's 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 Duke meets checkers almost. Um, again, you've got perfect knowledge. Everything yep. is right there in front of you. So you're missing that part of Duke. But the fact that these pieces, you know, two different pieces move in two different ways and they are moving in different each direction is that very different count of movements uh, yes. makes for a, a really interesting and and I want to say asymmetric, but it's not really asymmetric. No, it's not. It's, it's symmetrical. There's only two but, pieces in the entire game. But the pieces, you know, move in, in this interesting way uh, because the difference in moving left and moving right and forward and back. Yep. And uh, it, it really allows for a wild combination. I'm, I'm sure there are some math people who are just oh, digging yeah. into the, the, the possibilities in this game and, and loving it. Yeah. And, and it's so like there's so much you have to think about. Because pieces move so many different ways. Like I constantly moved parts into spots that I thought were perfectly safe. Just to have D kind of look at me funny for a bit, kind of second guess herself, like, oh, Mo must be planning a trap, then go, okay. And I'm like, oh, I kept forgetting the jumping rule. Like in this game, a perfect move is to use that move four left and take out three of your opponent's pieces at once because they did something dumb. Right. Like you just don't get that move. That move's not in chess or checkers. And the, what this game actually looks the most like is Shogi, which is the Japanese version of chess. And the pieces even look like Shogi pieces, which uh, the best I've ever done is I tried to play Shogi on board game arena and just lost so badly against easy <laughs> AI. I gave up now, even once I started to remember, especially the jumping rule, the jumping rule, like checkers, you jump 
but you can also land. I'm just in my head. I want to do the can move four, can move two, can move three. This spot is safe. And then I totally forget that you can jump over that space and take me. Once I started to remember this, I, it, it got better. Like, like once it started to happen, but even then you just, there's so many ways each different piece can move and you'd be able to jump your own pieces. And like, even, even Deanna who totally got the jumping over thing and right from the start was completely baffled the first time I jumped backwards over one of her pieces and captured it. And she had this WTF look and was <laughs> like, what, what'd you just do? And I'm like, the pieces move backwards. She's like, oh my God, I totally, it's right on the piece. They're in your face. I'll admit I was getting frustrated with myself. I wasn't angry at D for winning. I wasn't anything about that. It was just, I was so frustrated because it's in your face. It's right there. It's on the tile. But there How are so many that? pieces right there in your face that you have to yeah. consider all the different directions and different distances in every direction for yes. two different sets of pieces that again, the, the combinations, you know, combinatoric masterpiece. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and, and I don't get it. No one is talking about this game. Why is everyone talking about Shobu and Boop when they're Zensu? Not that <laughs> I'm saying this is necessarily better than those two, but it's on par with them at least. Right. For perfect information, this and Shobu are up there. And it's not new either. It's 2021. No. So I think that 2021 is probably its problem. This probably yeah, it was a pandemic, pandemic buried game. Pandemic. <laughs> anyway, um, fascinating chess like game. Um, D is like, I got to play with Gwen. Like we, we've got to play. That's, that's, that's the next thing. So I, I have a feeling once Gwen plays this, my game's going to be missing because she'll have it in her backpack to bring with her to school. And uh, she's a member of the chess club. And I totally expect her to go to chess club and go, if you like chess, check this out. Um, like I personally lost five times in a row and still want to play it again. And, and so it must be doing something right for me to still want to play it. And it's one of those games. Like I don't sit and like, okay, here's an example. We're sitting there, we're playing at the table and I have my move plan, but I need the washroom. I go to the washroom and in the washroom, I'm doing the flipping um, Queen's Gambit thing in my <laughs> head going, well, if I jump here and if I jump here and I come back from the washroom and play this perfect move, right? Like I literally sitting on the can thinking about my next move while not at the table. All right. Enough about Shobu. We don't have to review it now. We just praised it so much <laughs> that we, we don't have to say anything else. Outset media should be happy with our coverage. Now uh, we'll do a full review at some point. Um, next Monday night, Sean came over. We played some games together. Um, D and Gwen. Me and Sean played Mlem, which mainly I wanted Sean to try it before we reviewed it. Because even him, he described the way you described this game. It sounds like it makes sense, but you don't really get it until you see it. And you basically shared your thoughts on Mlem during the review. So yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it was fun, and I, I, I'm not the one reason I wanted to play it is because I'm not a Knizia fan. It's it, his games could you know come or go. I've hated some. I've got no real opinion about others. It's just not really my you know, my kind of math, math, the board game. Uh, whereas this one, what, well, because of that family level, I think it really, you know, family gaming level brought it to that step where I'm like, oh yeah, no, I can really kind of enjoy this and, and see it as a, a, a fun throwaway game without having to get into the, the math heavily and worry about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you were in there with the rest of us cheering people on or cursing them or like, mm -hmm. uh, it's that, that whole, when you send your cat thing, right? Like it's, Oh, is this going to be a big cooperative one where we're going to go as far as possible? Or is this going to be a screw you? You're not going anywhere. I, I still fascinating by that. That to me is the most fun part of that game. 
Uh, next up, since you were here and Lem plays pretty quick, we also broke out Wreck Raiders. Now, I kind of gave an overview of this one last week. That's the treasure diving game from Kids Tables Board Games that my family has really been enjoying. Now, it was Gwen's first game as well as yours, and Gwen really liked it. Yeah, no, Wreck Raiders was, was interesting. Um, it was about what I expected. Uh, I didn't love it. But I didn't hate it at all. Uh, the theme, I think, in, is is part of what sort of like, yeah, you know, I couldn't really care less about this theme. The little on the cutesy side. Um, but I think your daughters enjoy it specifically because of the the level of cutesy there. Yeah. Um, the drop table is interesting. It's nice to see a drop table. Although, as we discovered, don't drop too hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bouncy. don't literally just drop. Yeah, bouncy, dropping bouncy doesn't board work. work. Um, you know, you know, it's. It's, there's a bunch of ways to score, but it's not a huge point salad. You're really only scoring three things. Uh, yep. so you can focus, although what you focus on certainly does matter. So, uh, it's interesting. I think the player interaction on the board is great. Um, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, for, for kids table board games, it really achieves what they're going for in their space. It's not yep. a space that I'm particularly in, involved with right now, but. Had I, you know, a couple of younger kids that, and, and, you know, we were sitting around playing family board games all the time. I would probably be looking into more of what they offer because of it. I'm actually a little surprised. I thought you enjoyed it more than that. That night, it seemed like you were getting really into it. I mean, it was fun. I just, it was, you know, I, I could take it or leave it. I, I, it was, it was enjoyable, you know, again, not, not negative in any way, just not something I'm going to be raving about or, or eager to jump in on again. Oh, that's fair. Personally, I think uh, we're, we're pretty much ready for a review at this point, so I'll, I'll come up with final thoughts in the next couple of weeks. Um, but to me, it's the kind of game I'm going to keep because I host public play events. Mm-hmm. I yep. doubt it's one I'm going to break out on a regular game night here, on a birthday, on a new, well, maybe New Year's Eve because the, the light kids thing does go well with about the beverages. Absolutely. But I think for me, it's going to be a public play game, but I'll also keep it because my kids really like it. Yeah, no, I didn't. Yeah. D says it. D's right in the chat. I would rave about it to parents. Absolutely. Again, this isn't marketed for me. So the fact that I'm not loving it isn't a shock, but I absolutely see why this should be in family collections. 100%. Yes. All right. The last one I am going to bring up is that Asmodee has relaunched the Dominion app. I'm not sure how much of this is relaunched, what's new, what's not, but it's now available on all platforms, iOS, Android, Mac, and Steam, um, and includes cross-platform play. There's a big push right now for people to check it out who have never seen it before, and I went and did that and found out I already owned it, which was interesting. So I don't know if it was on Steam and got pulled or came back or whatever. It doesn't actually matter. My understanding is the big, the big new thing are, or things are the iOS version, which I believe is yep. actually, phys- is actually new. I believe the Android and, and Steam have already platform. existed, uh, the cross platform play, but also, uh, starting, I think tomorrow, possibly, or maybe the fifth, um, they're going to be doing some bundling and discounting of the expansions. expansions. So if yeah. you want to delve into Dominion deeply, uh, far more than just the base play, which, you know, most people tire of Dominion, the base game pretty quickly. There's a reason why there are so many expansions of it. Yep. Um, they, you know, it can be overwhelming because there are so many expansions, even though individually yep. they're not that pricey. There are a lot of them. So they're going to start bundling those and uh, giving some discounts in the coming week or weeks. All right. Now, what people should know is the early access version on Steam and all devices right now is free. 
So that just gives you the base game cards. So it's worth checking out if you have enjoyed Dominion. Um, one of the things I do like, though, is even with that, they do this thing called Daily Dominion Mode. And that gives you a set of cards featuring all the sets, whether you bought the apps or not. You don't need to own the expansions to play this. And it's this whole global thing that has to do with the cross-platform play, where everyone that plays Dominion that day on Daily Dominion Mode plays with the same set of cards, and then you get ranked across the world. Which I gotta say is a cool way to at least get to play the game with some new cards without having to pay. So I do recommend checking that out. Um... My only complaint, the interface is good. It's it's really well done for that style of game. But if you are used to the Star Realms app, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to you're going to sell cards you wanted to buy. You're it, it is a completely different interface than Star Realms, and it drove me bonkers until I got used to it. That and the AI is either exceptionally good or I am absolutely terrible at Dominion because like even on the easy AI, I'm barely winning and if I go to the normal AI, I'm just crushed by like 50 points every game. Now, maybe they may have updated the AI. I don't know. I've had this game in my Steam account for ages, um, and I wasn't that bad at the against the AI. But again, that's, it's been a while since I've played it. I haven't actually played yeah. it since they made this new release, uh, new notification, and send out uh, send out the PR. So I, maybe things have changed. I need to I need to pull it up again. Yeah. So this isn't one. We're doing a full review. This is it. That's all you get. I just figured we'd spend some time talking about it. Um, they told me they gave me a free code for the game, but then it was free anyway, which I thought was a little weird, but whatever. I'm like, eh, we checked it out. If, if you like Dominion, it's a solid way to play Dominion. And it seems like you'll be able to get, uh, expansions cheap. I gotta say, as someone who doesn't own any of the expansions, suddenly collecting peasants had me completely baffled. Um, <laughs> that is the one problem with playing on that daily Dominion mode. There's no way to like open the rule book in another window. Um, well, I guess on your phone, you open another tab and go Google it, but. But like there was nothing in the app to tell me what the heck these peasants I was collecting in the one game were for. All right. Wrapping things up. Let's see if we get done before 11. As for next week, uh, we are taking a week off from recording. We mentioned earlier, it's worth mentioning again. Sean's out of town from work. Um, Also means we're not going to get together for any gaming. Uh, Deanna and I are going to spend some time out of town ourselves uh, for a much needed break. First of the year and really first since November. Uh, Well, before November, like since before holiday season. So. I expect some more Zensu for sure. Uh, maybe some cartographers and probably some Star Wars deck building game. Maybe more. Um, as for work wise, I am hoping to use the time where I'm not working on things like show notes and um, things like that for the podcast to get out some written reviews that I want to try to catch up on. Right, right now, the podcast that you're listening now is ahead of everything else as far as content. So we're talking about stuff on the show, but it's not ending up on on the blog or anything or on youtube until a couple weeks after so if you are listening you're getting the cutting edge version or if you're here live so you do have that bonus before we start locking things down let's take a moment to thank a selection of our tabletop bellhop patreon patrons their support helps keep this show going harlos thank you tyco valentine page thank you diane tuzano thanks ma chris leary thank you chris Brian Sheehan, haven't seen you in the Discord. I hope everything's all good. You had nothing bad's happening. Hopefully you're just so busy wargaming you haven't had time to check in. Thank you, Brian. Well, that was the double bell. That means our shift's coming to an end and we're going to have to drop that portcullis. Oh, wait, no, sci-fi episode. We're going to have to beam everyone out. Even if we're not always here live, you can find us at tabletopbellhop.com as well as all over the web as Tabletop Bellhop, one word, and on your podcatcher of choice as the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast. Now, I know we're about to take some time off, but that's just in regards to podcast recording. 
there's still lots to get done and stuff going on behind the scenes. And you know what would make for an awesome incentive to both of us? Coffee. Keep us caffeinated and motivated by buying us a brew through ko-fi.com slash tabletopbellhop. Always one word. Well, that's all for us tonight. Another way you can show your support is by giving us a thumbs up, a like, leaving a comment, or better yet, tell your fellow friends and gamers about our show. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I'm Sean. And I'm Mo. Thank you. And And game game on. on. Find full reviews, show notes, and more at tabletopbellhop.com. Graphic design by Brian Weiss at RPG and Co. Music is Nimbus by Eveningland. The podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution license. 